Hello listeners and welcome to Cloisterbell Podcast. This is episode 60 and it's also the second anniversary and we are reviewing Earthshock. The TARDIS Cloisterbell. Imminent disaster. The Cloisterbell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. But the TARDIS doesn't have battle no, stations. No, 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 nothing along those lines. The cloister bell? Oh, no. Uh, hello, listeners. Hello, Liam. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. Hi, hi. All right. <laughs> yes, uh, well, yeah, I suppose I'm okay. Um, the situation that we're currently in is taking its toll a little, toll a little bit. I, I am missing people. Um, but I'm doing okay. How about you? Um, yeah, fine. Same as I was last week. So yesterday we're looking back at Earthshock. So this story was released uh, on the 8th of March 1982. Um, so a lot happened in the 80s in Doctor Who, didn't it? We had uh, quite a few eras <laughs> of the yes. show. Mm-hmm. Quite a few Doctors. But Peter Davison... Um, Season 19, which was his first. Mm-hmm. One of the highlights of that, of course, is Earthshock. Um, and it's quite a standout story because Adric dies. <laughs> what? Um, no, no, um, it's, it's quite a standout story because the Cybermen return. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah. And they hadn't been on the show for several years mm-hmm. since Re- Revenge of the Cybermen. And they've got this updated design. Um, do you like the design? Oh yes, I absolutely love the design. I think of all the designs of the Cybermen, this is my favourite. Uh, I just, I think it, they've got that wonderful. Just, I love the the suits and the helmet designs. Absolutely fantastic. They look strong, menacing, but there's also quite a sombre, menacing look to them as well. I just think they they nail the just everything about it. Um, I just think, yeah, I think this is the the best design of the Cybermen for me. How about you? Yeah, I like them. They look look a lot more menacing. The previous ones, um, Invasion, Revenge, they did look quite emotionless, didn't they? Yeah, they did, which, you know, uh, obviously uh, befits what the the Cybermen are about. But uh, I think this gets the the balance right between that and the technological aspect. um, Because even though previous designs were the best that could be achieved at the time those stories were broadcast um, and one can suspend their disbelief they are clearly just men in rubber suits with bits tagged on um, yeah. but you know the, the designs themselves are fine for, for the time that they were in but the, but for me uh, this, this revised look the 80s version I still think looks very good you get the technological aspect of it but you also get uh the fact that these are essentially humans encased in a sort of life support system but they but you know they look they look slightly robotic but they don't look like robots um which i think is very important with the seven because the whole point of them is that they are not robots it's one of the things that i'm not keen in terms of new who uh, the designs are good, you know, they're solid, but I, d- I think th- the designs that we have for the current era of Doctor Who, they look like robots, and that's mm. not really what they're about. And, you know, the fact that um, th- 
the idea of the Cybermen they're supposed to be made from strong metals and plastics, which but can bend. Yeah. Um, which is obviously technologically advanced. That's the the point of them, and I think this this design of them perfects that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they are just men in suits, um, mm. both in reality and um, in universe. And you're right; the new era is very, it's very robotic. The movement, isn't it? The marching, it's not as animated as it should be. And even the Cybermen in this story, you know, they, they walk around like humans, they, they occasionally trip down the stairs when they're trying to be menacing. <laughs> um, sometimes you'll see two of them having a bit of a chat in the um, in the freighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true, just having a bit of a natter, yeah. In fact, side on, it does look quite like the invasion head, doesn't it? The ripple on the side profile. Uh, but um, mm. the actual detail on the face makes it look quite different. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true, and I think I think that was deliberate. I think um, the designer looked at previous versions and went, "Well, actually, I look, I like that element of the invasion design, um, mm. so I'll, I'll I'll retain that, and then just modernize everything else around it." Yeah, I got my DVD out, and um, I forgot I'd had this one signed by um, by Matthew Waterhouse. What did you get signed? That's oh, um, I got his book. Is uh, he did a, an autobiography? I got that signed, and oh, you've actually just reminded me of quite a quite an embarrassing moment. I'll get onto that in a second. So anyway, yeah, it's, uh, autobiography, and also uh, the DVD cover of the Visitation. All ah, right, the Visitation. Um, visitation is that the where does this sit in season nineteen? Uh, I think it's me. two. What two before? I was thinking um, two or three. I can't. I can't quite remember. Starts off Castrovalva, then we've got Black Orchid before this. I think it goes Castrovalva, Four to Doomsday, Kinder, yep, then the Visitation, right? Okay, and then Black Orchid, yep, and then and then the Story of Shock, and then everyone's favourite Time Flight. So yes, as the DVD says, the mysterious disappearance of an archaeological team is merely the prelude to a deadlier threat for the Doctor and his companions. The Cybermen want to destroy Earth and will use any means at their disposal. The Doctor's ingenuity is stretched to its very limits as he battles to defeat the Cyber Army at any cost. But even he does not realise just how high the cost will be. I don't think anyone did. No, no. Um, it's it's one of those stories which has gone down in, um, in terms of Doctor Who, it stands out. But it, it seems to be one of those moments where, for a certain generation of, of people... Um, it was highly memorable television and it had a huge impact. Um, you know, in fact, cause I, I, I remember a couple of weeks ago I sent you a, a clip of um, a sketch from that Mitchell and Webb look. I think this might have been around about 2006, just to date it, so we're going back quite a way. But anyway, the, the, during this sketch, they're talking about, you know, that the whole thing is about, you know, th- maybe we should do something a bit sombre and a bit serious. And then David Mitchell at the point is like, what? Uh, kill off Adric and run the run the credits silently. So it even gets referenced in a sketch show uh, many years later on the understanding that the people of that age range and I suppose the type of people watching the show will get the reference. So I thought I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's just part of culture. <laughs> mm, yeah. Was there ever a, a chance of bringing him back? Do you think it was ever discussed? No, I don't think it was. There wasn't and like I... a whole uh, kind of free Deirdre kind of campaign. <laughs> 
<laughs> bring back bring back Adric. <laughs> oh bloody hell yeah do you remember the fe- so so for listeners who don't know there's a uh <laughs> brought back memories rob i completely forgot about this so there was a popular um uh, british soap opera called coronation street and there was a character in that program called deidre and i can't remember the storyline but she gets wrongfully imprisoned and there was this whole free deidre campaign but it got ridiculous Tony Blair, who was the Prime Minister at the time, even mentioned it in the House of Commons during Prime Minister's questions of going, yes, we should free, we should free Deidre. It's like, hang on a second. I'm sure you got more important things like, you know, the realm of the, you know, the state of the yeah. realm and other, uh, you know, policy matters to discuss. But no, that that was, you know, obviously yeah. to appear that he was Adric's one of life? the people. Is that not more important? Well, I can't see Margaret Thatcher... <laughs> <laughs> for all her virtue or you know or for all the wrong she did depending on your point of view ah, um, so maybe it depends on what government you've got in at the time yeah um, so it was bad timing yeah so if you had james callahan as prime minister maybe he would have started a, a bring back adric campaign so on to the cast and crew the doctor of course played by peter moffat for those in the know <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, gone, hang on a second you got that right <laughs> yes okay yeah yeah that's right <laughs> Or Peter Davidson, to those completely not in the know. <laughs> okay. Matthew Waterhouse played Adric. Janet Fielden played Tegan. Sarah Sutton played Nissa. James Warwick played Lieutenant Scott. Claire Clifford played Professor Kyle. Beryl Reed played Captain Briggs. June Bland played Berger. Steve Morley played Walters. Susie Arden played Snyder. Anne Holloway played Mitchell. David Banks played the cyber leader. Um, was this his first appearance? Uh, yes, it was, yeah. Alex Sabin as Ringway. Mark Hardy as cyber lieutenant. Mark Fletcher as first crew member. Christopher Whittingham as second crew member. Anne Clements as Trooper Baines. Mark Straker as second trooper. Of course, this was written by Eric Sayward. Mm-hmm. Directed by... Peter Grimwade and the producer at the time was J&T yes that's right yeah not the drink (laughs) gin and tonic (laughs) so this is only a four-parter so quite an easy one last week was a six-parter wasn't it Seeds of Doom (laughs) yeah it was uh We've so at this point in the show the the idea of a a six-part story is, is long since gone um I think the previous six-parter in terms of the show would have been the Armageddon Factor, uh, which was Tom Baker's penultimate um, season. There wasn't any in season 18, which by that point, JNT was was producing the show. Um, so yeah, so yes, uh, the, our previous podcast was us reviewing um, my favourite Tom Baker and favourite Doctor Who story, The Sea to Doom. And even though, you know, Love the story and everything like that. It is, I think, it is a, a bit of a blessed relief going forward for the time being. Um, it's short stories. Yeah, this one almost feels like a one-parter. It is quite a short story. And mm-hmm. um, the last Cybermen story we reviewed was the Invasion, which was an eight-parter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's kick off with part one. Um, this rescue team is arriving at the entrance to an underground um, cave system. Um, the team had been surveying after finding some old fossils 
However, the scanners find um, no signs of life, I believe. Um, and then we see two androids walking inside the cave. Um, Liam looks suspiciously rasped on to me. Is that a is that a case of recycled costume? I think so, but uh, I think you get away with it. Um, I mean, yes, you're right; you are very similar. But I think one of the reasons why you get rid of, uh, get away with it is because one, I think it's a very simple but very uh, effective design. Two, the way that they are lit here, they're pretty much in shadow for most of the time, so they yeah. remain quite dark and mysterious. Whereas in the Five Doctors with the Raston Warrior robot. It's out in the open, out in the open, and very clearly lit. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lot better than what was Russell T Davis's budget um, thing. Oh, the slabs, wasn't it? Just like leather men in motorcycle helmets. <laughs> oh blimey! Yes, I completely forgot about those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of thought went into those. I think. <laughs> Hey, simple and effective can work. So um, the rescue team decides to head down into the caves. Um, uh, Liam, I think these caves were discovered, not mined. Is that? Do you think that's right? Because the they seem very um, very open. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, obviously they weren't mined because um, the androids had been patrolling there anyway. For for naturally formed caves, the profile of them it's very like a flat floor. And <laughs> A corridor shape. Uh, <laughs> <cave>. <laughs> yeah, for for natural caves, they almost look like they were made in a television studio. How odd! No, I mean, uh, yes, I mean we, <laughs> we can't laugh, and uh, you know, yes, the the flows yeah. the flows are very flat, but um, it's to give them the <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, but to give them the credit, um, I don't. I, th- I think it's very easy to suspend one's disbelief when when I'm watching it because actually, uh, maybe you, you could argue that some effort could have been made with the floor to make it a bit more rocky and uneven. But um, actually, to be fair, they, d- they did come in through a narrow opening, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, you do get a sense that it is a real cave in terms of the, the, yeah. the walls. Uh, the walls yeah. look good, and not forgetting the whole thing is very dimly lit. Yeah. Uh, so there is that sense of atmosphere. Uh, which which helps enormously, and yes, there are there are sort of crevices where they've got to crawl through to get further on mm-hmm. into the caves. So you know, some effort was was made to the design as much as possible to to make it uh, appear real. And yeah. you know, I t- we'll, I t- let, we'll <laughs> let them off the hook for that. Yeah, I mean, yes, it is one of those things where I suppose you know you can sort of, as we have done, make a bit of a joke of it. But at the same time, um, I yeah, I can eat easily suspend my disbelief and still enjoy it yeah so the rescue team head da- heads down um, with Professor Kyle and she was one of this team of eight and she's the last survivor mm-hmm. um, but she goes on to be a, a part of this story doesn't she later on um, of course this Lieutenant Scott he's he's curious to know whether Kyle is being uh, truthful about the events, you know, there's a possibility she'd murdered them or something like that, or she knows more. But um, he seems convinced that that's not the case. But it is brought up. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think it's sensible in terms of the characters. You can, uh, you know, you can understand why. You know, it's a possibility that they would consider. Yeah. Um, and 
again, it, it sort of it, it brings another element of mystery into that first episode. I mean, we know that we have these androids walking around. Well, what's behind them? What's going on there? And I suppose, I mean, really, I've never, re- I've never really second guessed that character. Um, I've always thought what she says is true. I remember thinking that, you know, when I was, when I first watched the story many, many years ago, and um, but it's a, it's an interesting possibility. Um, yeah. Of course, we were thrown off of one character, Ringway, later on, weren't we? Oh yes, that's true. Yeah. So, as the rescue team are going through the caves, um, they are being followed by the androids. We see them lurking around in the background. And there's a good dynamic here because there's a team up on the surface tracking life forms. And they can't, they cannot track the androids, can they? Is that right? No. Or, does a yeah, blip, yeah, that's right. or do they see a blip from the androids? No, I don't think it's a, it's a blip. I think sometimes there's uh, there's an energy reading. So aboard the TARDIS, um, of course we have these two narratives going on now, rescue team and TARDIS team. <laughs> um, yeah. So aboard, aboard the TARDIS, the Doctor enters Adric's room, and Adric's feeling pretty frustrated and fed up about the way he's treated, mm-hmm. um, in contrast with how the Doctor's treating others. Um, and he tells the Doctor that he wants to return home. Um, so this is sowing the seeds for this entire story, the whole plot of him possibly departing. What's your take on um, the scene here with Adric? I thought it was, uh, one, it's, it's a nice scene in terms of how it's written and I, I like how uh, the two actors play it. And, you know, Adric is a very young character and, you know, he is a teenager. Uh, you know, and it's, you know, he plays it that way and you know he's sick of being teased and um there there just seemed to be a sort of parental uh relationship between the doctor and adric with the conversation i mean in many respects the the scene could be easily transposed into a straightforward drama Mm -hmm. um and this is quite i mean certainly at this point in the show this is quite unusual um for for the doctor uh, and a companion to have this sort of relationship, and it's quite nice that it's it's touched on. And uh, but then, you know, th- in some respects, they're 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 equals because the, you know the, the doc you know Adric says something which gets to gets on the nerves of the gets on the nerve of the doctor because you know he does touch on the truth, uh, which is you know he keeps on failing to get um, Tegan back to Earth, and Doctor you know says that's not fair. He goes, no, it never is when you when you're being you know mocked or whatever. Um, uh, and then, the, and then the doctor goes into a huff, um, and you kind of—it's it, interesting because it's sort of—he's coming across like like a parent would with their with their annoying teenage kid. But at the same time, it's like, well, the doctor's not being very mature in this situation, is he? And I guess, well, like you said, Adric's very young, so um, as young people are, they don't—they don't have the mechanism in their brain to compartmentalize and deal with emotions. Um, I guess um, because of course he's feeling frustrated but also the Doctor has never been so young because Peter Davison is the youngest Doctor at this point yeah yeah maybe he has a, a young mental maturity <laughs> to some extent <laughs> yeah, yes yeah yeah I mean it's amazing it's sort of um, when I think when Peter Davison left the show 
he was th- I think he would have been 33 which is our current age ah okay I mean he's a fantastic actor and he's always you know he's had this you know, it's amazing career and it's not surprising because he's a very very talented actor but put put up put in those terms you know um because I think he was 29 when he was cast um that I, I it's really weird. I can't like he he was he was our roughly our age when he played the doctor. Like as you know, we are Younger, now. Well, yes, um, yes. When he was cast, yeah, um, he'd be what we consider just a kid. <laughs> yeah, <Somebody younger. laughs> uh, and they're not forgetting. You know, I th- how old was Matt Smith when he was cast? Was he was he in his mid twenties? I, th- I, I may be completely wrong, but I, th- I think he was twenty seven. Right. Okay. I mean. We're still at we're still at this age, folks. Uh, there'll come a time when I think, yeah, there are certain indicators of going. Christ, I'm old, right? One of them will be when someone is cast as the Doctor, and we are older than them when they were cast. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. <laughs> and when it does, it'll hit us like a ton of bricks. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Yeah. What, what were we talking about? Um. Earthshock? Oh. No. Oh, Adric, 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 and the Doctor in a room. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was that. It was that we were talking about the the, matur- uh, the the maturity or immaturity of the of the Doctor. Uh, so yeah. because Peter Davison was was very young when he played the role, you know, it's uh, and because of appearances, you know, that that feeds in to how we can come across. So. In fact, even even um, even Adric says later on uh, in a subsequent scene, you know, when the, when the two are still, two of them are still bickering, he says to Tanissa and Tegan, "Since he's regenerated, since he's regenerated, he's become decidedly immature." Mm. And given the fact of how you know, sort of the, the the way that he's been having this communication with with Adric, um, he goes, "Well, yeah, maybe maybe he has a point," but at the same time. You can kind of understand where the Doctor's coming from because I think there's an affection between the two of them. Uh, I mean, at that point, Adric, of of the three companions, Adric's the one he's known the longest. The fact that he wants to go, I think, is it hits him emotionally harder than perhaps he, he realised. But at the same time, it's going, well, if you do want to do that, it's incredibly dangerous. So I think, you know... It, there's a there's a sign of affection, uh, which I sort of see throughout you know as we see throughout the rest of the story in terms of how it's written, but also how the two actors relate to to one another in later scenes. But um, anyway, I suppose there's a few examples of how the Doctor is not quite his usual self around people who are um, intellectual equals when maybe he doesn't quite. Well, the Doctor can be an intellectual superior around most people but maybe he's at odds with people that are unequal well occasionally uh, no, no I, I say what you mean and, and that's a good point but I mean you could actually argue I mean funny enough I think there are certain instances uh, when Peter Davison's playing the Doctor and it's picked up in like a story like Snake Dance but it's, it's here as well where sometimes the Doctor doesn't actually necessarily see how he comes across and maybe doesn't actually read uh, the moment particularly well mm-hmm. so um, when he encounters um, Colonel Scott for the first time 
you know, and he's trying to be charming and going, you know, maybe we we can help. It really riles um, Scott because he because he grabs him by the lapels and throws him down and basically says, "Too many people have died for you to play the fool." Mm-hmm. Um, now, yes, the doc, you know, the doctor doesn't necessarily understand the whole situation, but you know, I mean, Tegan and Nissa can read the situation. And theoretically, like or hypothetically, if we were in the situation, you would read it. Well, something serious is going on here. Um, and Captain Scott really takes issue with the Doctor initially. Um, you know, he, he yeah, the, he grabs the Doctor, and the Doctor kind of anxiously laughs, doesn't he? He's like, oh, maybe not. And then he gets thrown uh, thrown against the rock. Yeah, and uh, and then that line: "Too many people have, have have died to play the fool." And then when they encounter this, um, there's a there's a hidden hatchway. Um, and they don't know what it is. He makes a point that he wants the doctor to open it, mm-hmm. sort of as as a means of. I mean, he really takes issue with 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 this person. So before the doctor does bump into Scott, Professor Kyle tells Scott that um, a lot of equipment's gone missing and it's been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously a concern for him because your natural assumption would be that. It's been sabotage, and of course, could it have been her or another member of the team? Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that it was, in fact, the androids. Of course, Adric is plotting a course back into e-space, and the Doctor's reluctant to help. And then the TARDIS arrives on Earth inside the cave system, and outside the cave entrance, the scanning team detects the TARDIS. Like I mentioned earlier, in the scan, they detect that the Doctor's got two hearts. And inside the cave system, the Nissa notices outside that um, there's lots of bones on the cave wall, and there's a very, very elaborate fossil on the wall. You know, in the, in the very elaborate tunnel-style cave, there's yes. a, a side profile of a dinosaur right there on the wall. Um, well, I mean, but we are told that um, that this cave system was very rich in fossils, so you know, it's uh, it marries up with what we were previously told. So yeah, um. Conveniently, Nissa inquires because she doesn't know what the hell these creatures were. Mm-hmm. So, um, for the sake of the plot, because this becomes relevant later, <laughs> um, the, the Doctor and Tegan get to elaborate and <laughs> explain uh, blah blah blah. Yes, they died out 65 million years ago. Something hit them, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you think I'm an idiot, but I actually think that, um, I mean, yes, you're right. It, it does. It does marry up, and it, it, it. This whole explanation does become very essential to the plot later on. Um, but when I first watched it, I just thought it was in relation to establishing why the team were in the caves in the first place, and it was just a nice little scene explaining the history of the dinosaur. Because sometimes the you know Doctor Who puts in these little scenes which are quite nice don't necessarily further anything to the plot but all what they do is establish some just further something that's already been established and just allows the doctor to have a nice bit of interaction between uh, his companions so when yeah. i first watched this many many years ago i just took it on those lines i didn't i didn't see it as a, as a massive flag for and this will become relevant much much later on nobody could possibly guess the story would take this route. <laughs> no, I suppose not, given uh, the change of location later on, but yeah. So, one of the surface team, um, Snyder, 
she heads down into the caves and she soon becomes this steaming pile of green stuff mm-hmm. when, when the androids attack her. I don't quite know what they've done to them. No, but I mean, I think it's I think it's very effective, and I think the fa- obviously that they're able to kill. They're basically able to to completely liquefy, if I can put it in those terms, um, somebody. It's it's pretty horrific. I mean, when we see it, it's just this hissing green mass of stuff. Yeah. Uh, it does. It, it looks gross. In fact, because there's even smattering of red within the green, so it's like. You got the sense of you know there's there's blood in there and it's oh yeah it's not very nice I think it's I think it's very effective I think it's quite horrible yeah and then some of the um, rescue team stumble well I was say they stumble across it but they stumble on top of it <laughs> yeah they stand in it what uh, the yeah. hell's that <laughs> ew wipe it off my boot <laughs> uh, so shortly after this um, as we said before the TARDIS team is confronted by Scott and his troopers. Scott gets tough on the doctor, shoving him about, and they discover the hatch in the cave wall that's been set up by the androids. Then they are confronted and attacked by the androids because they've come to to defend the hatch. And in fact, the team had been down there for a few weeks, I believe, unless I'm wrong, Um, and they weren't attacked until they went near that specific part of the cave system. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the the um, the sabotage that we uh, that you talked about before that that's all that that that, that the androids have been doing up until that point, um, just sabotaging the um, the the um, investigate uh, sabotaging. Oh, for God's sake! So <laughs> preventing the team doing what the, the specific word I'm trying to think and I cannot think yeah. of it for some reason so I'm rambling but um, basically slowing the team down but yes you're right it's only when they actually discover the hatch or the place where the hatch is yeah. um, that's when they get attacked yeah. and killed because these these are not bad guys these are just machines with a single mandate which is to protect the hatch yeah Yeah. Mm-hmm. there's a bit of a crossfire and then we have the big reveal hmm this, this is what um, nobody knew about. Yeah, it's it's interesting because this. Um, so John Nathan Turner wanted the the reveal of the story's main villain to be a complete surprise. So the the public gallery, uh, because the, the, there would be a, every studio would have a gallery where uh, certain people could watch the recording of a production. He he had that completely covered. So no one would be able to watch what was being recorded in the public gallery. The um, they'd actually been approached to appear on the front of the Radio Times television uh, listings magazine, which back in the day was was a big deal. If you were on the front of of Radio Times, that was a big advertising thing for you. But mm. because it was to advertise this show, um, arguably would have given something away. John Nathan Turner. Uh, vetoed that um, quite a big decision um, you know so he basically said right this this major part of publicity in order to keep a secret or you know a story a twist if you like uh, I'm not going to take up that option of, of publicity which is interesting I think the surprise appearance itself would have been enough publicity probably because everyone mm. would have been talking about it by this point yeah 
Right, well, actually, because we've got um, Doctor Who the Handbook, which I've got, uh, and looking at the fifth Doctor. So I've just opened it up uh, to Earthshock, and I have the viewing figures for the episodes. So, episode one had 9.1 million viewers, uh, which obviously ended on this massive climax, uh, which is the return of the Cybermen. Now, actually, I just want... So, obviously, the, the, the big... The, the reason, you know, it's it's the big reveal that the Cybermen are... Now, you know, have returned. That's the massive cliffhanger. Um, do you think it still works as a cliffhanger? Uh, in the sense that it's a, a nice surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Do you think it's ineffective in another way? No, no, not at all. I was, I was just wondering if you thought. Yeah, no, I think it's still a, a very effective uh, cliffhanger uh, because it's it's basically a big narrative turning point. Um, so it, you know, it still works. It's still an important part of the, the story structure, uh, and it, and it is a great reveal. I think it's a. I think it would be simply because of our age. It is one of those things which is sort of lost to us. I think it would have been really interesting had we watched this, if we'd been able to, and you know when it was originally broadcast, and have that as a surprise. Because if um, the, the VHS cover, you know, has the, had the Cybermen on it, um, and that's when we would have first watched it. Uh, I remember buying it secondhand from a from from a place that sold secondhand videos in the Green Market in Newcastle. Just that I'll put that in there as a as a, as a walk down memory lane. And then when you had uh, the DVD. Obviously, it has the Cybermen on. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'm just thinking about that video shop. Is that why there was like um, the 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 video covers were like in plastic pages, and then you'd pick the video cover you wanted, then they'd put it in the in the box. Some sometimes uh, yeah, with those. I just vaguely remembering that but place. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you, you would have because this was on the ground floor. Is this the one you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so you, go, you, would... you go on the front door, and then it's like off to the right and around the corner. Yes, that's it. That's exactly yeah, right. So yeah, fun. you would come in uh, on the ground floor. Immediately to your right, you had a butcher's who who did great savoys. I remember. But anyway, uh, yeah. Then you would walk down, turn right, and I think it was like two, two or three stores down. Yeah, that's it. Could all could always get really good. Uh, I, th- I think he tended to sell them for five ninety five, five pounds ninety five pence. Uh, God, the stuff you remember. Anyway, yeah. So. Um, so people of our age and, and and upwards with the home entertainment market and how these stories are packaged, we always knew that the Cybermen are going to appear. But anyway, going back to that point, so this was another thing as well. When Peter Davison was the Doctor, they, they, they did a massive change, which was they no longer broadcast Doctor Who on the weekend. It was during weekdays. Mm-hmm. And you had episodes one and two broadcast on the same week in consecutive days. And then you would have to wait a week for episodes three and four. So episode one was broadcast on the 8th of March, as you said earlier, and that had 9.1 million viewers. Now, interestingly, despite the cliffhanger ending, episode two, broadcast on the 9th of March, so the following day, dropped to 8.8 million. What? So everyone got all hyped up and didn't bother. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I mean that's still you know decent viewing figures. Don't oh, get yeah, me wrong for, for a second part. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting that. But then weirdly, <laughs> for episode three, the following week, episode which was the fifteenth of March, nineteen eighty-two, they then go up 
to 9.8 million. Oh. And then the following day, there's a slight dip, not much, and it goes down to 9.6 million. Now, I want to see... Now, <laughs> now, this is a thing, right? So that was episode four, which we'll get on to. Don't get... So, which had 9.6 million viewers, which has this, you know, amazing ending. So then Time Flight... <laughs> episode yeah. one had 10 million viewers whoa now interestingly sorry we'll get onto the point so i just got because i just think this is hilarious so obviously with the ending of Earthshock, so then time flight episode one has 10 million viewers so everyone's obviously talking about that ending which we'll get onto yeah or they're really excited to have a show without Adric. Maybe yeah. all the haters. <laughs> Maybe. So anyway, Finally so episode... he's gone. <laughs> Finally he's gone. So then episode so episode one of Time Flight had ten million viewers. Episode two plummeted to eight point five. Oh dear. Yeah. Then weirdly, episode three goes up again for eight point nine million. <laughs> then it people, goes are people just tuning in every other episode. <laughs> it's weird. Then episode four goes back down to eight point one million. <laughs> Anyway, weird. I just thought I'd mention that. It's Sorry, weird. Rob. Let's crack um, on. It is relevant, though, because part one of Time Fight um, addresses some of the questions about um, saving Adric, doesn't it? Do you remember yeah. the start? Yeah, yeah, the, at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then, and then then it's just like, let's go watch cricket, everybody! Way, yeah. And then Adric's pretty much forgotten until I think he appears again in episode two, briefly, but as a sort of ghost. Mm-hmm. But I think that was written in so that anyone who was looking at the TV listings and went, hang on a minute, Matthew Waterhouse and Adric isn't in anymore. I think it was to cover that. Um, ah, to, to okay. cover that uh, so people wouldn't have clocked. Um, in fact, because I, I remember, I've, I cannot for the life of me remember who it was, but I remember reading ages ago. It was um, it was somewhat it was someone's recollection of watching Earthshock, you know, when it was originally broadcast, and they were devastated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Adric had died, and in fact, and then the, 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 his his father got the uh, the TV listings and went. Don't worry about it. He's back. Look, he's he's in ne- he's in the next story. It'll be fine. And then he was like, "All oh, right, okay, okay." And then obviously, when it's like, "No, he's only as a ghost," and that's it. It's like, "Oh no, he he really is gone." So on to part two now. Scott and his team managed to damage one of the androids because they're damaged. They retreat to get out of harm's way yeah um because they're not they're not in it just for the fight they want to stay safe in order to protect the hatch this is the point where the doctor deduces that the team was working near the rock fall um where they were attacked so perhaps the androids were simply defending the hatch so he kind of figures that out mm-hmm. and then he has this clever idea to um draw the androids out by attacking the hatch and it works doesn't it when they open the hatch, like you said, um, Scott gets the doctor to open the hatch, and there's a bomb inside. The cyber controller um, now feel, feels compelled to activate the bomb. So this bomb is going to detonate on Earth. That's their, um, that's the Cybermen's initial plan. Mm-hmm. That, that changes the whole course of the story when um, the bomb's deactivated. So when the bomb's going to go off, the doctor retreats back to the TARDIS, Provides everyone with safety. This doesn't always happen, does it? Where they they use the TARDIS um, as part of the part of the drama. They don't always bring all the all the characters in. Yeah, you're right. That it is quite rare. 
So everyone goes back to the TARDIS and they try to block the signal to the bomb while he tries to disarm it. And um, and then the Cybermen, well the Cyber Leader, plays back the footage and he sees the TARDIS and he recognises it. Well the Cyberman that's with the Cyber Controller, he seems to know who the Time Lords are. Mm-hmm. And he knows that they are forbidden to interfere. So there's a there's a general knowledge of the Time Lords here. But the Cyber Leader himself personally remembers the Doctor. And mm-hmm. they replace some cool sequences from earlier stories. So we have the first Doctor from the Tenth Planet. In recent years, it's quite a memorable scene because, well, of course, we had the, uh, the reconstructed version of the story for for new viewers to catch up on that but also that was featured in um, David Bradley's performance wasn't it? The Love, Pride, Hate, Fear um, it's that sequence so that'll be quite familiar to everyone by now. Yes yeah yeah it's um, it is a very iconic moment because of that and uh, I mean it's hardly surprising because it is, it is a great little moment um, and it does stand up and it, it yeah it, it is a nice little scene I mean at this point the show was 19 years old for a television show is quite you know is you know that's quite a bl- that's a bloody good running um and so you've got this it's it's william you know you're seeing william hartnell again for the first time since since the three doctors so almost 10 years prior you know so, so you're getting a real but in a nice way it's not overbearing but you're getting a sense of um you know the, the, the history of the show at this point to you does it seem like it was a long 19 years like that's ancient history to the show um, because it's it's only been 15 well it's been a whopping 15 years since the new era started but that doesn't seem that long ago to me oh I think it does you think um, it does yeah, yeah. In, uh, in relation to the classic or the new no I, I mean just in general it's quite a long just in, a long just in general years. I mean when you consider when that show came back I mean in terms of our own I mean when it came back in 2005 I was still in sixth form and then, you know, and then we're going into when David Tennant became the Doctor, uh, you know, I'm at university. Um, so, you know, putting it in, putting in that, putting in that context uh, for me, it's it's like, because I'm, I'm not just talking about it in terms of a television show. I mean, because as you you know, 15 years is, 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 is impressive. But in terms of where I was and what I was doing in my personal life when the show had come back in relation to where I am now to that, it, oh... Yeah, it, it, it does feel like a, an awfully long time. My perception, uh, well, my take on everything you've just said, um, mm. we were in sixth form together. One day I just didn't come back <laughs> and I started working. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was out, I was out, just I had a job and Doctor Who came back and I've worked ever since. So I guess my life has been relatively, um, not not relatively unchanged because now I have a family and I've moved house. <laughs> I have my own house, but I'm um, no longer a kid. In 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 some senses, um, my lifestyle hasn't changed. It's like um, it's like to me, some songs remind me of certain years. But yeah, yeah, you can do. I mean, there are certain songs that I can listen to, and they can take me to a specific moment. You know, it can really catapult me to you know a specific place and time, and I can still obviously enjoy the the song in the present. But obviously, there's a um, there's an emotional connection there because of. It takes me back to, um, 
you know, it takes me back to, to many years before at a particular time, which may mean something. I guess to a lot of people that were around um, classic Doctor Who will have that same effect on them. Mm. I mean, not forgetting as well, it's sort of like if you were a kid watching um, Earthshock for the first time, um, say you were six years old, or, or maybe even younger, you know, sudden, you know, you're being made aware of the history of the show, and that can just, you know, that can be very cool. So, I mean, I remember that when I first watched Planet of the Daleks and the Green Death, so this is late 1993, early 1994, I didn't think I was watching television programs that were 20 years old at that point. You know, when I was watching them, I actually thought it was contemporary narrative. It wasn't until actually I got, I started buying them on, on, on video, because at the back it told you the original transmission dates. You're going, oh, okay, this show's a lot... I mean, obviously, there was, you know, the 30th anniversary thing, but it wasn't... It was like, oh, yeah, okay. But I wasn't really bothered about... I know, I was never really bothered about that, and I didn't think about how old the show was. One, because I was young myself. But funnily enough, I've never really... I think I think maybe because there's a, there's a disconnect in that when when we got into Doctor Who, it was through the classic series, but it was during a time when... The show wasn't being made, but that didn't matter. We we were still discovering stories that were completely new to us, uh, out of context of when they were originally broadcast. So I've never, yeah, it's amazing that you know we're talking about the the story that was made in 1981, broadcast in 1982, um, but you know we weren't around then. So there's a you know we're talking about the we're talking about the story, we just enjoy it, and we're aware of. The fact it was when it was broadcast, I feel much more of um, in terms of the, the history of the program because I think it was contemporary, and I've seen you know I you know I was still I don't know whether I'm explaining this properly. So when when the show came back in 2005, because now it's a contemporary show, or was then a contemporary show, and now you know I'm growing up with it. The age of the I'm more aware of the age of new Doctor Who. Funnily enough. Because you you lived it. Yeah, because I lived it, rather than the age of classic Doctor Who. Classic Doctor Who is just something I really enjoy, and it's never been within the context of when it was originally broadcast. It was just, you know, great stuff. And obviously, I have very fond memories of it, and I still enjoy it. But when, when Doctor Who came back, it was a contemporary show, and, you know, I was still a teenager when it came back, and then I was in my early 20s, and it was immensely popular, and it was... Uh, because I was into it, my friends at university got into it, and I saw, you know, uh, you know, young members of their family liking it, and there was, you know, it just becomes a much more bigger thing and a a much more, um, funny enough, a bigger part of one's life because it somehow connects to other things that are going on, and then it also becomes a marker of when you were growing up. Of course, for younger generations who grew up with the new era when they were very young um, Russell T Davis once gave a great example he said I feel like Journey's End yes like Rose is coming back and it hasn't been that long um, in a general sense but to a child who was six when she left in series two um, they'll be like eight or nine now and it was a lifetime ago for them and they would have remembered it so it would have been something quite special so um, time passes differently for people doesn't it 
Yeah, no, no, that that is very true, and that is a good point. And I mean, that takes us back to to Earthshock. I mean, when it was originally broadcast, the la- as you said before, the last time the Cybermen had appeared in the show was way back in Tom Baker's first season, season twelve, Revenge of the Cybermen. So actually, there would have been a vast number of kids watching it who never would have seen the Cybermen, may have been aware of them. But yeah, because they hadn't been in the show for for an awfully long time, and I. With the with the Blu-ray edition of, of Earthshock, because they did a new making of documentary, Matthew Waterhouse makes the point because he says, well, yes, the last time the Cybermen appeared was in that Tom Baker story, Revenge of the Cybermen, but really, as a continuous main villain, there hadn't really be there hadn't really had that impact since the sixties. So they were, you know, they were there when just at the back end of William Hartnell's The Doctor, they were they appeared several times during Patrick Troughton's era, none during the Pertwee era, once in Tom Baker, and then suddenly, you know, they're back in a big way in Earthshock, and then they would appear again in The Five Doctors, and then later Attack of the Cybermen, and then later Silver Nemesis. So they become a bit more... So yeah, Matthew Waterhouse makes that point of going, yes, they came back after, I think it would have, I think it would have been seven years or something. But even saying that, really, there hadn't been there hadn't really been an impactful enemy since the sixties. So actually, there's a there's a much more there's much more going on. It's probably for the best if they'd been coming back too often. They would have become what the Daleks are now, almost. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I think one of the things I always thought that John Nathan Turner did correctly was that he recognised the impact of the Daleks and how greater and anyway they were and you bring them back so you get the balance right bring them back semi-frequently I think is probably the, the phrase to use because I can understand they were around an awful lot in the 1960s because they were a huge surprise you had what the popularity of them Dalek mania but they were also kind of working out what they could do with them as characters then they don't appear for a while and then when John Pertwee becomes the Doctor I think he has th- does he have three stories with them? Day of the Daleks, Planet of the Daleks, and Death. Yes. Um, and oh, and Frontier. And sp- Frontier, briefly. Yeah, yeah, briefly. I suppose you could say mm, three or four. Yeah. And then Tom Baker has two stories with them. And then they appear once for each of the other Doctors in the 80s. And I think that's I think that that's the right balance for them to remain interesting and sem- semi-concurrent, but, but also keep their keep their threat levels up yeah and the stories in the 80s are, are so different and we're so lucky that um colin and sylvester even got the chance to do it oh yes but yeah yeah very much so yeah. especially colin and look oh, that story's so bizarre and so great <laughs> in other words yeah um, oh, i really want to do revelation now we haven't done it have we no 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 but well yeah we definitely need to at some point so yeah we'll definitely get around to doing it because it is a great unusual story so back to Earthshock it was, wasn't it? <laughs> Went off on a, oh, a bit yeah. tangent. It happens. <laughs> um, so I was basically going through the archive footage of the previous Doctors. Um, mm. I mentioned the first Doctor. Went off on a massive tangent. And <laughs> then we see the, the second Doctor uh, on Telos. And none of his other appearances are mentioned, but... Um, Tomb of the Cybermen, uh, possibly one of the more dominant stories of those. 
Isn't the clip used from the wheel in space? Oh. Because isn't yes. it the line, I have, I think you have orders to destroy me? Yes, that line's not from M2. Yeah, I'm sure it's from the wheel oh, in it's, space. It's the, it's the cyber leader who um, references the ice tombs, doesn't he? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it is mentioned. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so I, I guess a bit of both. And then we see, um, we see, we must see a shot from uh, Revenge of the Cybermen as well. Yeah. So I guess in a linear sense, you could place those stories in chronological order. Well, I guess, of course, 10th Planet, um, very early on. We can place the second Doctor stories um, after that. In the part because is this is is this a few, is this thousands of years in the future this story uh, adric mentions the air doesn't he i think and he does yeah but yes anyway um i know that the whole cyberman timeline is a bit of a confusing one mm. um but it from the the cyber leader's point of view this is the furthest in the future i guess yeah mm-hmm. yeah so the year that's given i think is 25 26 so the doctor's going to leave the caves now and he's going to go to the source of the transmission um, the transmission being um, the signal sent from the cyber leader to the bomb and the cyber leader and his cyber army are aboard this freighter in I don't know, Sector 16 or something <laughs> yeah Scott and Kyle um, identify this Sector 16 as being in space somewhere so, so they decide to go off with them the doctors were looking for them to go but they want to defend their home so fair enough, he lets them come. Though they go off to have something to eat. Adric's quite hungry, but um, did he not get his last meal? Because the doctor kind of calls him back, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. He goes, die hungry. But but but, uh, but I'm hungry. When you can go, you can join them. You know, and they and they have a, a nice, uh, you know, a nice uh, sort of reconciliation, and and, yeah. and they make up, and it's it's quite nice, and yeah. You know, Adric's basically went, nah, I've decided to stay. And, yeah. Uh, it's, well, he, actually, he actually admits that all the time he didn't want to go home. He was just trying to make a point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's quite a nice scene. I like how, how they both uh, how they both play it. And, um, yeah, it's quite it's quite nice. So they're, they're back to being friends again and yeah. all is well. All is well for now. <laughs> yeah, for now. In fact, because he, even later on, when, when they arrive at the space station... And the doctor's going out to investigate. Uh, Adric's, you know, Adric's going, you know, basically, can I come along? He's like, are you sure? He's like, yes. It's just like, right, come along. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it, you know, it's just nice, and you get this sense that they both enjoy each other's company. Um, yeah, yeah. Ah, as brief a time it's not going to last. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to last. Yeah. Um, so aboard the freighter, we see the bridge crew. They're awaiting the captain to return from this adjacent space station. Mm-hmm. We learn that three men have disappeared in the past two weeks, but the priority for everyone seems to be just getting the delivery done on time. The delivery mm. being this freight to Earth, just so everyone can get their bonuses, you know. So it's all about money. Tardis you... materializes. Well, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, do you get the sense that uh, Eric Sayward and the designers seen the movie Alien when you watch this? See, usually I make a, um, a comparison to Alien, but I didn't this week. <laughs> What's wrong with you? No, because I, I just thought you know. Uh, the... Go on, ask him about the bonus situation. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. It just this thing is just a bonus, bonus, bonus. You know, it's like, by law you're guaranteed a share uh, and all that, and it just get 
because that's a big thing. Is yeah, I just couldn't help but make the comparison to yeah. It just made but, me think of Alien. Yeah, but um, Dallas and Alien, Captain Dallas, he's no comparison to Captain Briggs here because <laughs> she's she's the worst of the lot, you know. You know that yeah, that's very true. Yeah, so so maybe the comparison is a bit of a stretch. So the captain returns to the bridge, um. And she's raging after being made to wait several hours um, to return because mm-hmm. the station was on red alert. Um, she's returned with a couple of chests, um, boxes, and then um, she gets them left, um, taken to her room. I wonder what's in them. Nothing's, nothing's ever mentioned about that again. <laughs> yeah, it was just, yeah. Some contraband or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what she's got. She's greeted by crewman Ringway. Um that's a funny relationship with these two. Mm. I was a bit confused here initially. Um, if the Cybermen are responsible for the risen crew members and Ringway is working for the Cybermen, why is he making such a big deal about the disappearances? I was a bit confused by that. Yeah, I was as well. I mean, he's a bit... He, and the, he is the, very... the captain's like, oh, shut up, forget about the missing people and the dead people. I just want my money. And he's like, no, no, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could, it, it's good cover. Um, you don't suspect him. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. But um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's almost <laughs> like they were writing this just as they went along. You know, let's actually make him bad now. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's harsh. Um, I mean, I suppose you could argue it that you know he's he's trying to um, you know if he ever is you know he, he's he's covering up, so he's yeah. never suspected. Yeah. So you know, it, it sort the, the, of it makes sense in that. But so they'd think if this guy was bad, he would not be so stupid to tell us to investigate the um, disappearances. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit overplayed, you know. He doth protest too much. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. There is there is a bit of inconsistency. I mean, you, you can, so as I said, I, I do think you can sort of make sense of it. But mm-hmm. um, the way that it's and I'm not saying this against the actor because I think he's working with in terms of what he's what was written, mm-hmm. but in terms of how he plays the part, um, you don't get a sense that you know he he's trying to cover up, but there's something a bit underhanded going on. It's like sometimes people are trying to conceal something but make it obvious to the viewers, but not to the other characters somehow. And you only get a sense of something um, the way that he is approaching the um, the flight deck. But that's only... I think that's just a minute before it's revealed that uh, that he's working with the Cybermen. In fact, there's a there's a, there's a few scenes where we, we see Ringwood on the ship and then there's a scene with the Cyber leader talking into like a, a communicator and there's yes. a bit of a muffled voice there. And mm. it is it is Ringwood because he's, he's the traitor that's yeah. working with them. But you wouldn't know it, would you, um, at this stage? Uh, it's never really adequately explained, is it, why he's working with a Cyberman, is it? It is questioned, you know, is it for money, what have they offered you, gold, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but no, it's not. Yeah, and that whole conversation brings in the element of gold. Um, yes, which is. is Which is consistent with what has already been established in um, Revenge of the Cybermen and, and would later be used a bit too much in Silver Nemesis that they, you know, they're inimical to gold. Gold is inimical to them. So it gets it gets that uh, that line of the narrative in, so it's it's good writing in, in that respect. But 
yeah, you don't really get well, why is he working with the Cybermen? So that that isn't really explained. I mean, you could argue it's it's not needed, but I think some sort of explanation would have been quite nice. There's a funny moment where two patrolmen are going through the through the freighter, and one of them says, um, "You could hide an army down here." Oh, you, you, yeah, you could you could hide an army down here, and no one would find it. And the Wink to these, the audience. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Turns slowly to the camera and winks. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it is a, it is. I think, in all fairness to the actor, he delivers that line very well. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's uh, it, it it's it's the one piece of comedy. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a massive wink to the audience of just <laughs> you know just going. Oh, that line lacks subtlety. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we um, we almost at the cliffhanger because Adric and the Doctor they know they're being followed. In fact, the Doctor wants to be found, and um, yeah. they find some murdered crewmen, mm. and Ringway finds them, and um, he says, "On the ship, we execute murderers." Um, do you think this is tr- this is true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, it must happen an awful lot for him to come up with that. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, on to part three now. The story does well to paint a picture of Ringwood as being a good guy. He even seems quite um, open-minded when the Doctor says they didn't kill the crewmen. Mm-hmm. So, the, at this point, the, the viewers are still being deceived at this stage because the Doctor's saying, look, look, look at their wounds. We, we didn't kill them, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, we still don't know. So, the cyber leader wants the Doctor taken alive to suffer for their past defeats. You could almost think that the cyber leader is being driven by emotion, but enough evidence is there to support the fact that he's driven by logic. But, you know, there's even a point where Tegan says, well, that's sadistic. And, you know, it's easy. Like, no, it's not. It's just a... It's just scientific. Logic. Yeah, scientific. Yeah. So... Yeah. But there, there is a little inklings here and there that um, could make you think that he is acting from um, acting with emotion. Isn't it? Yeah, I think it's one of those things which is, is quite difficult because if you have the idea of the Cybermen, and I've always said this, I think I think the idea of the Cybermen is a good one. I like the idea of them, but I, I don't necessarily sort of because I know that there are a number of people who really love the Cybermen and for them it's their favorite monster, which is fine. But for me, it's um, I've I don't feel as sort of like passionate about it. Uh, you know, obviously, I like the I love the Daleks, but I would say, you know, I would, and I love the Autons, and I would say that you know I like them more than I do the Cybermen, and I think a part of that is to do with um, the the stories. I think the way that they have been utilized tends to be more disappointing than than effective. I mean, obviously, I love the invasion. I enjoy this story, um, but uh, compared to the you know. I know that the Daleks have appeared far more, but in terms of quality, I think there are far more better Dalek stories than they are Cybermen ones. Definitely, yeah. Um, so I'd just say that, but I think it's quite difficult if you've got the so. But anyway, I've always liked the idea behind them, and if you have this uh, this mon- uh, the, this villain, which is uh, they're supposed to f- function purely on logic, and they're completely emotionless. I suspect in order to to write an engaging story with that as the concept of the monster, I think that would be very difficult to do. You know, to consistently maintain that 
idea that you know you're, you're going across something which is completely logic and is completely emotionless so i think it's inevitable that one because of the difficulty but also to maintain viewer interest i think it's inevitable that some element of emotion would have to seep in even though arguably it goes it contradicts the concept of the monster but i think it's it's like what you said I think they managed to get away with it in this story because actually the point of it's raised and it's mentioned in the dialogue. And you mentioned a very good example of that. Tegan goes, that's sadistic. And then, you know, the Cyberman goes, no, scientific. It's We're doing this so we can understand humans if we are to defeat them. You kind of almost buy it. And you go, you know what? You've raised it. I buy that line as an argument. I'm not going to look too much into it. You've acknowledged it. Let's move on. But who knows, maybe they do have a bit of emotion. I mean, you could argue of, of maybe it's uh, the, the emotions blocked, but memories of having emotions still lingers. So maybe it's a... Maybe it's a mem- sort of like a distorted memory of this is how we used to behave as humans coming through. Maybe you could argue it on that lines, I don't know. Did you notice that the Cyberdesk is very tardish? console-ish. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you mean. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It does have that uh, that sort of look. Yeah, it does. I guess the Frida is also a bit of a time machine because it, um, it does function as one, incidentally, <laughs> later on, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So the bridge crew and the TARDIS crew both detect this power surge as the first bunch of Cybermen wake up and the bridge crew say that there's been there's been the odd few power surges um, over the past few days, weeks, whatever um, but nothing on this scale the cyber leader's personal guard are woken up and um, they make a move to take the bridge um, the captain's reluctant to allow any setbacks you know, she doesn't want to lose a bonus or have to face a hefty fine <laughs> but mm-hmm. um yeah, Cybermen are awake. Tegan opts to leave the TARDIS with um, Lieutenant Scott, doesn't she? And Kyle yeah, stays. Yeah. Kyle stays behind. So we have these two different parents that's split up. Tegan's definitely taking a lot of risks. She's very strong in what she does, and uh, oh yeah, she takes Scott's overalls, doesn't she? No, not Scott. Uh, the the archaeologist, Kyle's. Yes. Well, why didn't she just go with a wardrobe and get something more practical? They didn't have time. Didn't she have goes, time. right, you love, get your kit off, I'm sticking <laughs> what you're wearing off. Fair enough, makes sense. And it's actually amazing that they fit her. <laughs> Considering Kyle is considerably taller and uh, than, than, uh, than Tegan. Right, okay. And, you know... Different body structures, all the rest of it. And yet, you know, the overalls fit Tegan perfectly. It's a, it's amazing uh, clothing in the future. Um, the Doctor finally sees the Cybermen on the monitor. When um, the Cybermen are kind of converging on the bridge, the Captain decides to abandon, and um, Ringway then reveals himself. He pulls up a gun, and Briggs says something along the lines of... Um, what are you doing? The enemy's out there. Yeah, you're pointing in the wrong, your gun in the wrong direction, Mister. No, hang on. She goes, uh, "The enemies are outside, Mister." <laughs> she doesn't say Mister twice. That was my mistake. But anyway. So yeah, he's holding them at gunpoint. 
Hang on, sorry, I've, there's something about that. So, one of the things I want to talk about, just briefly, not massively, but because um, the captain is played by uh, Beryl Reed. And her casting's always got comment. What are your views on Beryl Reed as, as the captain? Um, unexpected and unique. <laughs> I think. I think. <laughs> I think that is the best description. <laughs> It defies expectations, and I love it. Yeah. Um, she's a very unusual choice. I mean, don't get me wrong, because Beryl Reed, I think, came from, from a comedy background, but she could play uh, drama very well. She, uh, if you've ever seen... Uh, she plays Connie in the BBC adaptation of uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People. Mm-hmm. And in those scenes, she's opposite Sir Alec Guinness, you know, amazing actor. And she plays the part phenomenally well. And she's up against one of the best actors. And she holds her own. She's a very good actress. So in terms of Beryl Reed, the idea of her being cast in Doctor Who was being preposterous. You know, I've never bought that. She's very, you know, she's shown how skilled she was as an actress and other things. But it's really weird. I think I think you hit the nail on the head with what you were saying. Um, in terms of the casting, casting her as the captain... I think she is miscast. But, having said that though, it somehow works. Lord knows how, because it bloody shouldn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> but... The, the captain is meant to be um, a leading figure and she's kind of lacking some morals here, here and there. Mm. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And I don't know how, but Mer- Beryl Reed, you, you kind of, the, the moment she first appears, you go... What? <laughs> what? But you know, you just somehow you manage to buy it. The one thing that I think is a bit of a mistake, and this isn't her fault. The reason why I bring her up now is because of that close shot, because she has a very uh, a big close up shot when she's saying to Ra- uh, Ringway, uh, "The enemy's outside. You're pointing the ro- you're going in the wrong direction, Mister." Her makeup. Do I need to go back and rewatch this? <laughs> I'm sorry, just, just. You don't have to come back and watch it now if you want, but it's just look at that shot and how she's made to look. I, I think one Beryl Reed cast is just what it's mind-boggling, but yet yet she manages to do it. But everything to do with her look, her hair, her makeup, it's yeah, the, the outfit, the whole thing. It's just like right, we're just gonna we've got this really bizarre form of casting, and we're gonna make it even more bizarre by making it you know really stretch your credibility into accepting her as the captain because I, I just think the makeup's bizarre but um but but somehow she manages to pull through and it's just it's just amazing it's just one of those things of only in doctor who only in doctor who could this happen yeah <laughs> and only See, in doctor we're, we're who could this, this work so she walks on set and like yeah that's normal <laughs> It's, and it's really bloody not, but yeah, not it's just like, ordinary here. Yeah, just yeah. What do you mean? What, what, what? What's Beryl Reed doing in this in a, in a bizarre orange wig with the looking like her face has been caked up in pink makeup? That's perfectly normal. There's nothing to comment on here. Let's move on. So shortly after the Doctor is um, questioning Ringway about um, why he's helping the Cybermen, mm-hmm. um, of course, gold is brought up. And the Doctor mentions their aversion to gold. And mm-hmm. Ringway sees Adric trying to hide his gold star quickly, but then 
yeah, that's brought to his attention now. Uh-huh. But then all of a sudden, Kane Ringway is knocked out, and then they kind of close the blast shield on the door up mm-hmm. to the bridge, and are sealed in for now. I love the realization on Briggs' face when, um, yeah, there's 15,000 silos, and she realizes that the army must be in there. <laughs> yeah. Big close up, looking at the makeup. <laughs> no, that's not possible. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, um, Ringway is regaining consciousness on the floor. Mm. Now, the captain didn't execute him. So, do they execute people on the ship? Well, you know, they had pressing, uh, <laughs> they had other pressing things at the time. It's just like, oh, well, we'll kill him later. Kill she him. just goes, oh, that's a pity. I had uh, written a very nasty epitaph for him. <laughs> so, yeah, so maybe she was going, <laughs> I'm going to kill the bastard. Uh, <laughs> but sadly, didn't get round to it. But he does die. The Cybermen begin to break through the door with a, with a thermal lance. That's mm. where things get a bit complicated. So the Doctor plans to see, shield the door further using this antimatter containment somehow from the ship's shields. Mm. Oh, from the ship's... Um, the antimatter obviously powers the propulsion. and I don't really know. Even Adric um, didn't understand. He was a bit pushy for an explanation here, wasn't he? The Doctor's trying to get busy and get this done. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue as well that the fact that Adric is, is badgering for an explanation is obviously to tell us, so the Doctor provides an explanation to us, the audience, to determine what the hell is going on. But it also ties up in that very early scene, you know, when, when uh, Adric's basically going, can't you explain things to me, please? So it's sort of, it's it's an, it's an a response to that earlier scene in episode one, as well as telling us, the audience, um, what the Doctor's trying to do. So Tegan and Scott and the gang are about to ambush these two Cybermen um, down in the freight hold, the freighter. And what I find funny here is that the two Cybermen seem to be stood having a bit of a chat. <laughs> yes. They, they really are, aren't they? Mm-hmm. It's like they're not just patrolling, they're not just stood like statues. They're just, just chatting away. <laughs> I think someone should get that scene and just uh, just overdub it with, I don't know, I just, it's just, well, have you heard about Derek? You know, and just just having a, like a, a gossip about somebody or something, and yeah, it, it is quite funny. As they're attacked, Tegan bravely runs and grabs their the weapon. Mm-hmm. So she's putting herself in harm's way a bit. Yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah. So onto one one of the more bizarre parts of the story. Um, we'll have the Cybermen passing through the shield of the bridge doorway, and the mm-hmm. Doctor fuses him within the door. <laughs> Yeah, which I think is great. I, I think it's a great scene at, uh, and, a, and a great moment. Um, it was unexpected, but it it, 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 it happened. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> yeah. Just to clarify, so the, the Cyberman is half fused with this door. Yeah. The Cyberman then put some charges and blow and what I'm presuming is a different door. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I thought they'd just... Uh, I had a moment where I thought, oh, now he's not in the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a, it is a different door. And oh. then during the course of the scene, you've just got this, this, this big hulking Cyberman trapped in a door in the background. So, you know, yeah, it's not forgotten. So as the Cyber Leader is outside the bridge door um, and the Abney's charges, a damaged Cyberman crawls up the hallway and then realise that there must be more hostiles. So the Leader orders... That they awaken more Cybermen on the ship, more reinforcements. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then the set charges um, on the door and uh, the break in. Mm. We've got a really dangerous situation here. The cyber leader enters, acknowledges that he knows the doctor, and the cyber leader kind of nods to his um, side man, then the cyber man pulls his gun out, but then he doesn't shoot the doctor, he shoots Ringway. <laughs> Do you think he was kind of tying with the doctor there, implying that he was going to kill him? No. I mean, again, it's 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 one of those moments which, uh, in terms of the narrative, the story makes no sense whatsoever. It's obviously, it's there for the benefit of the audience. Like, to put <gasps> you, oh no, but then... Yeah, to, to put you on a, a bit of edge. Because, I mean, this, this story has had quite a few... Um, twists and turns and, and surprises to the audience some of them are really good this one i think is quite lazy um i mean considering that ringway had a gun in his hand you could argue that it was to make ringway think something else so when the cyberman turns to kill him he's he's not prepared mm-hmm. so you could argue it on that lines but re- but really i think you just stre- i think really you're kind of stretching it i just think it's a uh, it's it's supposed to put us the audience on edge and then surprise gone. Oh, they didn't kill the doctor. That's a bloody relief. They killed they killed this loser. I love how you can see the saber saber leader's mouth here. I haven't watched the commentary for Earthshock since the DVD came out, um, which might not have been which may have been fifteen years ago or so. Um, but I seem to remember that was there an issue where the mouthpiece was steaming up or something, and they the, the ended up just painting it. In the final moments? No, no, it, it wasn't that. What happened was, um, so the the Cyberman voice was the the actor's own voice being distorted, but it was done in real time. So they were mic'd up inside the helmet, and there was a battery pack. And what happened was the battery pack, which had been sellotaped to the the top of the head, ended up falling down and then falling down the side. So then it started appearing through the mouthpiece. Ah, uh-huh, okay. So that's what that was. And then there wasn't enough time to unscrew the helmet take it off fix it and put it back so the quickest solution was well we'll try cover it up by lightly spray painting spray painting the the the, uh that transparent cover all right okay so i guess it's noticeable if you know but otherwise it's not that noticeable is it Mm -hmm. no no um i only noticed it when it got mentioned on the on the dvd Mm. it's just going oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah now it's ruined for me forever <laughs> <laughs> forever um yeah it's, it's all those things it's like you know it, it's pointed out but it, it doesn't bother me no not, not at all i remember thinking at the time when i first watched Earthshock, i didn't like that that you could see the cyberman's mouth inside no um, no i just I, I don't know why it just i just thought it was um i wasn't keen on the idea i like it now what was your interpretation of it when you saw it? Did you think, oh, we're not meant to see that? I'll pretend I can't see it. Yeah, I thought... I mean, I know that they spray-painted it silver, but I actually thought it was... Uh, well, I can see the actor's mouth. That's just lazy. <laughs> Honestly, that was the thing. I'd, um, I, so I, I was never really keen on that. Um, I just thought it was just... A, they could have thought about that one a bit better. But... <laughs> stupid child... But yeah, I, I quite like. I, obviously, I like the idea for, you know, it's it's the idea that you've still got the human inside. You know, basically, the Cybermen's like a life support system. The human's still inside, somehow preserved. Mm. Um, you know, just emphasizing that idea. So you know, I like it now. But I remember as a kid watching the story, I, I wasn't all that keen on it. The Cybermen are all bursting out their silos, smashing them open, and kind of all hobbling around, covered in plastic bags. 
and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to make it sound so cheap, but that's how it takes place. And uh, Tegan bravely runs through them again. And the army of Cybermen storms through the freighter, um, quite reminiscent to the end of Invasion. Almost, you know, that famous cliffhanger of them walking through the street. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the final shot has three lines of Cybermen kind of split from a single shot, I presume, which kind of looks a bit unconvincing. Again, the first few times I ever watched this story, I always thought that looked great. Um, you know, three rows of Cybermen marching together as one. And then obviously when it was on the DVD, so I hadn't seen it for years, and I'm watching it again with, with fresh eyes at that point. I think the problem is, I think it's, um, they almost get away with it, um, because, I, d- I mean, I don't know whether it's supposed to be a stylistic shot, or if it is the idea that you're supposed to have these three rows of Cybermen marching at the same time, which I'm assu- assuming is the, the thing. I just think that they linger on the shot a little bit too long, because it just gets to the point where you can tell that actually the shots are going to blur into one at the point. You, it, I think if they cut a little bit earlier, they could have just got away with it. I don't know. It doesn't do too bad. It could, could, have, no, been no. Lot, could, have, could have been a lot worse. <laughs> oh yeah, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, it's, it's not too bad. It's not a disaster and it doesn't take you out. But you are aware of the technique of how they achieved that shot just by looking at it. And that's the end of part three. So on to the final part now. The Cybermen have a new plan, obviously, because the Doctor stopped the plan on Earth of detonating the bomb. So mm-hmm. the Cybermen placed the androids on Earth um, to set the bomb, and uh, now the Cybermen are just going to lock the freighter's coordinates with Earth, and there's going to be an impact. And the leader explains why. Because there's a conference on Earth to unite the forces against the Cyber race. Again, this isn't really a big plot or anything, but um, it's curious that the Earth Empire or whatever considers the Cybermen such a big threat, yet none of the characters of the period seem to know who the Cybermen are. Oh, yeah. You're right. Unless the threat of the Cybermen is a secret from the public. I don't know. Or... Maybe they know the Cybermen, but they don't know what they look like. But yeah. that, again, that wouldn't make any sense. Well, again, um, the Cybermen would would have been known from hundreds hundreds of years prior. Maybe mm. just gone from memory, but um, the governments do know about them, and maybe they are they are a threat in certain parts of the galaxy. Yeah, I mean, because the the very second Cybermen story, the Moon Base. When the Doctor suggests to Hobbs, who's, I think that's the name of the character, the, the guy who's in charge of, of the moon base, and says, look, the, the thing behind all this is the Cybermen. His reaction is, the Cybermen are just a childhood story. Or, you know, th- the Cybermen did exist, every child knows that, but that was that was ages ago. The idea of it being the Cybermen's laughable. I mean, it's not it's not painted in such clear terms in this story, but... Yeah, actually, you've yeah. you've ruined the story, know. Robert. Makes oh, sorry. no sense. It's, <laughs> makes no sense. The story's turd. Um, um, yeah, I never thought. Yes, the public might have just forgotten, or they might not know so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the following scene, um, I really like. I really like how Janet Fielding uh, plays that whole scene, 
you know, where she, you know, she's happy to see the doctor and but she's confused. And the, the, the way she, I don't know what it is, just the way that she delivers the line, this thing caught me. I always liked her delivery of that line for some reason. And then that whole thing, because the, uh, and then she's, she's threatened. Yeah, because she doesn't really know what they are yet, does she? No, no. There's even that, that very wooden scene in the TARDIS with Nissa and Kyle where they're like, um, they're robots, they're giant. <laughs> yeah, no, no, she goes, yeah, it's one of those scenes because, uh, I was going to mention this later, they're scenes where we just randomly cut to inside the TARDIS with Nissa and Kyle. They are completely pointless. What is the, they're there just to go, oh, we haven't seen Nissa because we've, bundled her in the TARDIS and we're not using her. Let's cut to her. Yeah, she's fine. Let's go back to the action. Yeah, I know what you get is this scene going, what's that? I don't know. A robot. It's huge. Cut to the main scene. And she's like, and? Because <laughs> <laughs> even later on, there's this whole thing when uh, Captain Scott and Tegan have been separated. So they're trying to find Tegan, but they can't. And they went, right, we need to get back to the TARDIS. So they get back to the TARDIS. Uh, they get assaulted by uh, a Cyberman. Now I don't know whether you noticed this, but there's a mistake. So, oh, you know, you know the you know the trooper who gets grabbed by the Cyberman outside the TARDIS. Ah, uh, right. I, I had a bit of a confusing moment where I thought maybe there was two of her. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so you did notice it? Yeah. So she gets grabbed by the uh, the Cyberman uh, and dragged off. But we then cut inside the TARDIS. Sound. Safe yeah. inside, inside the TARDIS. Mmm, interesting. Or maybe there's a twin and we didn't realise it. So anyway, so they get back to the TARDIS. And this is all a cool scene, but then Kyle dies. Right, okay, you know, th- that's tragic. Um, this is, you know, this is very sad by that because she's been, you know, she's been stuck. It's been the only person she's been allowed to talk to for most of the story. So that's understandable. But anyway, the point I'm getting to is, so Captain Scott made a big point that they need to get back into the TARDIS. Then they want to get into the TARDIS, only for him to go, you know what, we need to find the Doctor again for them to leave. It's weird. Yeah, so he goes back to the TARDIS to leave. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's weird. Um, so Tegan's escorted to the bridge, and the leader, cyber leader, observing that she's important to the Doctor decides to exploit his affection for her by ordering her execution. Then the Doctor mm-hmm. hesitates for quite a while, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Before um, he's like, no, don't kill her. Yeah. So, so the leader now knows he has control over the Doctor. But um, it's, yeah, it's interesting that the Doctor hesitated for so long. You think he would have had no shame in defending his friend's life. No, no, but at the same time he, he's recognising that it's a, a sign of weakness in front of the Cybermen. So he can, you know, he's kind of calculating it. But yeah, and he, he can control them through that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but it's also a tense scene for us, the audience. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Will he let her die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's fine. And again, we've mentioned the humans are told that they're going to be left behind um, on the ship and the Cybermen are going to observe their fear. <laughs> and then we'll have a Fond farewell to Adric. Um, the cyber leader's leaving with the Doctor and Tegan, but insists that Adric um, remains with the crew. And he and the Doctor say farewell, and then they head off to the TARDIS. So it's the last time they meet. Or so we think. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those things that go, 
yeah, the, the, the Doctor says, go, you know, they shake hands and then that's it. And that's the last time that the Doctor will ever see Adric alive. Yeah. God, you know, have you got a lump in your throat? There's something in my eye. Um, it's, yeah, do think, it's... Do you think most of the audience weren't um, appreciating this moment as much? Because, of course, they're, they're always facing threat. Yeah, the companion. No one die. None of the regulars die in Doctor Who. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, it's just for us, the audience, uh, for the tension. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those things. Now, obviously, I mean, it helps with hindsight because we know where this, the story's heading. But uh, it's one of those scenes where you go, "Oh, he's going to die, isn't he?" <laughs> because yeah. we also get, we also get that shot. Uh, it's a very nice shot as well. You know, when um, Adric says goodbye, Tegan. I'll see you soon. Yeah. Any other show, any other show, you would go, ah, oh, he's going to die, isn't he? But not in Doctor Who. That never happens. Never. Uh, no, never. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a good shot. I do like that. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, that's the, you know, that's the last time they see him. Um, Scott retakes control. Well, he doesn't retake because he hasn't been there yet. But um, he takes control of the bridge. Yeah. And... Um, also, some of the, well, all the remaining Cybermen begin to wake up on the freighter. Mm-hmm. Um, do all the Cybermen wake up? What was the plan here with the 15,000 Cybermen? Was, he just, a... was, was the Cyber Leader going to let them die? Because him and his, kind of his right-hand man, head off to the TARDIS. He had no time to rejoin the, the fleet, his own, the Cyber fleet. So yeah, I think he was just going to let the let the cyber army die. I guess um, there's no kind of viable way he can get them off without delaying this impact. Yeah, and it, because uh, because they can't use the bomb anymore, uh, he's had to adapt his plans in order to use the freighter to do, to uh, to to achieve his goal. So he manages to get as many cybermen off as much as possible, but. Um, it would be illogical to stop um, st- to stop something that would be of major strategic value to them, and I, and obviously they don't have an emotional connection. And that shows that um, the, it was the Doctor's weakness because he did have emotion, and now the Cybermen, the Cyber Leader, will not hesitate to destroy his army. Yeah, if it if it allows a major strategic advantage, yeah. On board the TARDIS, Tegan's quite upset that they're going to destroy Earth. So doesn't she kind of lunge at the controls or something? Uh, and they all kind of fall sideways. <laughs> yeah, just by tilting the camera and you know wobbly acting. Yeah. But um, they didn't. But tilt it, it the works. Set. It's effective. What? What they didn't tilt the set. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. They tilted the set, and it's all very you know. But uh, no, in terms of how they do it, it's still effective and it's it's fine. It works. Um, so here's the interesting bit and one of the bigger revelations in the story. As they attempt to move the freighter, because Adric solved some of these logic problems on um, this cyber device that's on the freighter, the freighter instead somehow t- jumps time warps, as the Doctor says, and starts to go back in time, phasing in, in and out. It's quite a miraculous thing to happen. I, I guess that... Um, this ship can um, can warp through space, so I guess theoretically it can warp well, Rob, through, it's through all time explained well. in the dialogue. It's all explained in the dialogue, which is going. 
We're, we're, what was it? Uh, we're, tra- we're traveling to through time. That's impossible. It is when you have an alien device overriding your controls. That's all the explanation you need. All you need. Yeah, all you need. So if we had one in the car. Yeah. <laughs> Be able to travel to the metro center in the speed of light. It'd be absolutely fine. Yeah. So the freighter's on a collision course and the crew begin to evacuate. Adric stays behind because he's confident he can solve the final logic code. Um, as the escape pod leaves, um, they're viewing this from the TARDIS. It's, a, it's quite a cool model shot, actually, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and the cyber leader's confident that it's um, the Cybermen who are on board, but that's not the case because um, Lieutenant Scott kind of just defeated them. And the Doctor tells everyone that the freight has actually come back 65 million years. That's where we're thinking, ah... <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> you know that fossil part in the episode? It had a purpose. Yeah. So, yeah. Wasn't just random crap. <laughs> it was actually setting up an important plot point. Yeah. Who knew? Um, yes. So, yeah. Adric's still on board, but the Doctor has Adric's badge and he has a plan. Um, as Tegan lunges on the Cyber Leader, the Doctor uses the the gold badge to weaken the cyber leader and um and then he shoots him repeatedly at point blank yeah and kills him <laughs> mm. i haven't got a problem with that because i mean he was he was a threat and he was going to kill them no so... i don't i think it's always a an interesting thing that the doctor does but um mm-hmm. it, it, it always defies your expectations but it's also um justified yeah i think what's that thing is it from the hand of fear the um state of temporal grace yes it is yes and then that's brought up again in let's kill hitler do you remember that when river's second in incarnation <laughs> she shot the the central column time rotor whatever you want to call it and and she said you said this tardis was in a state of temporal grace and he said that that was a clever lie <laughs> so that kind of fixes that any continuity issues people had about um, being able to use weapons in the TARDIS. Well, actually, uh, there's a fix much, much earlier than that. Is there? Yeah. It's actually addressed in Ark of Infinity. Ah. Because at the beginning of that story, the, the Doctor and Nyssa are, you know, mending the TARDIS. And the Doctor's making a thing, uh, making a point about something. And then um, Nyssa actually goes, and that's another thing. You said uh, the TARDIS was in a state of temporal grace. Guns couldn't be fired. Uh, and I think the Doctor just goes, well, no, what is perfect. And it's the idea that, yeah, we used to have a state of temporal grace, but now it's it's broken and it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and basically what that oh, was... was it a clever lie? <laughs> well, if it was Stop a clever lie, it certainly worked in Hand of Fear because yeah. Eldrad wasn't able to... So, no, I, I get it. It clearly was a thing. Um, I totally believe that it would have been a bluff as well by the fourth Doctor. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, the way that Eldrad, because we've seen the way that she's been able to read the Doctor's mind and um, sort of like mentally attack him when they're at the power station. Now she suddenly she isn't able to do that inside the TARDIS. So I, I do think it was it was a thing. I mean, obviously, it was only established for the purposes of one story, and then it's just promptly forgotten about. And the f- and and so you know you have this cyber guns were shot in Earthshock, and I think actually. 
someone had got in contact with Eric Saywood and went, hang on, there's a continuity error, State of Temple Grace. And he went, oh, right, okay. And then wrote some stuff in Elk Infinity to correct that. Yeah. So the TARDIS team watch on the scanner as the freighter crashes. Now, just to clarify, did the freighter impact with Earth and detonate? Because we see the freighter blow up in space on the scanner. Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> well, yeah, that, right. It's uh, it's interesting. I think that was the intention. Uh, but they probably weren't able to do that as a special effect. So th- what, what we see is the freighter explodes. And I think maybe the remains of the freighter then crashed into Earth. Yeah. But, but if you, on the DVD and also the Blu-ray, when you watch the optional CGI effects... Uh, the modernized effects Th- they've done it in a way where they they make the freighter clearly crash to earth okay um which i think to, as a, i think works more effectively i think i think that was the intention uh but perhaps maybe the, maybe they weren't able to achieve that you know back in 1982 yeah i definitely understood that but mm-hmm. uh, um and i understood that understood that what we were seeing represented the impact so it was getting fine. And so... Um, Adric's dead. Adric's dead. I mean, Matthew Wardhouse has, has always come in for some flack for his um, for his acting. And to be perfectly honest, I've always thought that it was never a problem. Um, I think there are some instances where it isn't as um, you know sharp and as, as on par as with the other regulars. But if you watch his performance, for example, in The Keeper of Trark and the Tom Baker story, I think he's very good in that. And I think he's also very good in this story. I mean, there are signs that he was an inexperienced actor and I think maybe sh- should have been offered a bit more guidance. I mean, there's um, there's a lot of hands in pocket acting. You know, he doesn't know what it does. He doesn't know what to do with his hands. So he constantly puts them in his pocket. Uh, and you see that, you know, you see that throughout his entire run. You know, but it's 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 you know it's fine. It is what it is. I don't. I, I've never wa- I've never watched him. You know, play Adric and be so appalled of what I've seen and gone, oh, that's awful. That's pulled me out of the drama. Um, but there are there's certain stories where I think he he's much better than others. Keep it track, and I think he's very good in, and I think Earthshock he's very good in. Um, there are some nice interactions he has with Peter Davison, um, and then towards the end, I think you, you know. Um, he he goes out on a high, I think, um, with his performance, and it's just that that nice shot where we see him last, where you know he he knows he's going to. Di- I mean, I think at this point in the story, we knew he was going to die because it's been established that the freighter has to crash on Earth in order for the design does dinosaurs to be wiped out, in order for for humans to to get uh, to get into the picture, so. It's a fixed point in time. It's an event that has to happen. So once that's established, we know that, well, really, Adric has to fail. Because if he succeeds, you know, he completely alters history. So we know at that point he has to fail. And that means he has to die. Um, it's a, In terms of Doctor Who, that's a, that's a very good idea and a way of... of going about you know if you're going to write a, a companion out like that it's uh, not only is their death final but you've made it a part of history and just that that last shot you know when when Adric knows and he you know he's he's you know he he's very brave and you just see him clutch the belt 
which the way he was, you know, he was introduced in a story called Full Circle, and his brother dies in that story, and he's given his brother's belt, and that's the brother's belt. So you know, he's clutching that, and the, there are one or two moments in terms of. Uh, the music, because that's one thing we haven't talked about, which is Malcolm Clark's score for the story, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Uh, especially the march that he gives for the Cybermen. It's brilliant. Um, but he also incorporates some little motifs of... Um, the theme. Yeah. Well, yeah, the Doctor Who theme, but he also uses some some of the music score from Full Circle. Ah, okay. Which introduced Adric into, into, the, into the score here, which... Uh, uh, which, you know, if you're just listening to it and watching the story without having seen that, it's just a piece of the score. But if you if you remember Full Circle, it's a nice little sort of like a reference to Adric's first story. So there are some nice touches there. So Adric's dead. Yeah. And the Saberman shut the controls on the ship. And Adric says to himself, um, he says he'll never know if he was right. <laughs> Do you think he was right? Would he have succeeded? I think so, because he clearly had the skill and the ability to do so, but I also think it works in terms of an Eric Saywood script, because when Eric Saywood writes a script, there's an awful lot of... There's an awful lot of death in the stories he writes, and uh, there's an awful... You know, there's always that sense of tragedy, and I think that just adds to it. If Adric was right, he would have got out of it and survived... Uh, and I just think that adds more to the poignancy. I mean, it's still poignant, the fact that he dies, so it works with or without it, but I just quite like the idea in terms of the drama and the, the you know, sort of like the tragic irony of it yeah. that I think he was, yeah, I think he was probably right. And it does beg the question, why can't the Doctor just nip back and rescue him? Which is addressed in the following episode, um, mm-hmm. Time Flight. You could say that another doctor would have done things differently and not found a problem saving them because the impact of course is a um, fixed point in time there's nothing to say that you can't crash the freighter without saving Adric yeah yeah no no that is true but I think um, there's the moral thing of well it was going well if you know it's you know he died that's a part of it's a part of of life people do pass away sometimes peaceably sometimes in tragic circumstances and we have to accept that mm. and if um you know and there's a whole element of you know of of of, cha- of you know the moral significance of changing of you know past events and then it raises the question well if the doctor is able to go back in time and save people then where does that stop yeah i think this is brought up in school reunion when the doctor is presented with this opportunity to bring the time lords back and and Sarah kind of puts him in his place and says you know everyone has their time and everybody dies that's just life mm-hmm. um, you can't play God with life you know yeah and obviously that becomes a bit of a theme with his doctor but I also think it's a very uh, it's a very mature response so it, it says an awful lot for her character but also uh, an awful lot for the drama of that story we've talked about it previously on the podcast one of the things I'm not overly keen on in terms of modern Doctor Who is its absolute refusal to 
to kill any of the companions off. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that every time someone wants to leave the show, they should be permanently killed off. Um, no, because, you know, that's just silly. And then, it, you know, but if you're going to make the decision to kill a character off, that's a big, you're making a big impact uh, in relation to that, certainly in terms of the drama. And then to constantly reverse it, it's just going, well, you're just diluting the drama. And it's, one, I don't think it's it's particularly moral for a show to, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm getting on my high horse, but um, I think that if you are going to make the significant decision that, you know, Bill gets turned into a Cyberman or Clara dies, you know, those, those are big, bold decisions to do narratively. Yeah. If you're going to do that, you stick with them. Otherwise, if you just go, well, actually, we're going to cheat this and reverse it in some way, you're going, well, why did you decide to for us to have this emotional, you know, have this significant emotional impact in the story, only for you to go, it doesn't matter. One, that's a problem. Two, it also says that, really, there's no real threat in the show. It completely dilutes the drama right across the board. Because the whole the whole purpose of Doctor Who is that it's an action-adventure series and that people are placed in in dangerous circumstances and you know but they overcome them mm. but once in a while you go right okay to, to to aid the drama of the story we've made the decision that we're going to kill off a major character okay um then stick with that i think when they so when they got rid of clara and face the raven that was very good. That was very good. It was good in terms of the story, but it was also good in terms of how they did it. And Clara went out on a high. She was incredibly brave. You know, she had made a decision and she stuck with it. And it really sold her character. It was brilliant right across the board. Only for it to be completely reversed two stories down the line. In a story that I'm not particularly a fan of anyway. Um, but it's just like, well... Where's the drama? What was the point of going through all that? You've just, yeah, and I find it really frustrating and I find it very lazy. And that is one instance where I feel like, well, classic Doctor Who got it right. Um, because um, there, was a, there was a companion in Hart, uh, Hartnell's era, I've forgotten her name now, but she di- she'd only been in a handful of episodes and she dies in the Dalek Master Plan. Um... Is this Katarina? That's it. Just remember the character's character's name. She's only been in a handful of stories, though. Um, Whereas with Adric, you know, you're making a very bold statement, and it really—I mean, it's 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 a big thing, and it it meant an awful lot to people. And as as we said, you know, as we said at the beginning of uh, of the podcast, it it resonated so much that it gets referenced in a comedy sketch show uh, decades later. Yeah. Um. So it's good that it wasn't reversed. You know, I'd totally forgot about Clara and Bill. Fair enough, Clara was brought back, but she would have had to one day return to the point of her death, so it would have come for... She still would have died. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. But with Bill, she was given the opportunity to be fully restored as a flesh and blood human, um, which I think might have become the case in one of the lockdown stories that I think we had. By Stephen Moffat, so <laughs> her death is totally undone. And then, of course, we had the Brigadier. Um, the Eleventh Doctor was reluctant to face his death, and he gets the phone call 
saying the brig has died. Mm. And then he, he kind of faces his death, almost. And then that's undone with the cyber brig. Oh, for God's sake. Yeah, just... Oh. Yeah. So, funny enough, in, in some respects, I think modern modern Doctor Who doesn't deal with death in a particularly meaningful or mature way. And it's one of the things that irritates me about modern Doctor Who. Don't get me wrong, I still like it. It's it's and This is just, you know, a, a, relatively speaking, a minor element of it. But when it comes down to it, I wish they handled it better. Yeah. Um, With regards to parting ways, I think one of the better, probably one of the best um, ones was probably Donna. It was almost like a death, but it wasn't because she just she lost her memories. Yes, in fact, because funny enough, that's uh, I, I always found Donna's departure very emotional. In fact, that, that that's one moment where it uh, it did bring me to tears. Um, and when she does return, um, a couple a couple of times that we see her in um, the end the of end, time. The end, the end of time. It's just that. It's just a return. It's not. It's not a return like Rose. Where she's back, and we have to, we have yet another, yet yet another reunion and a departure. Mm-hmm. She's just she's just there. You know, I think that was great. Yes, it wasn't undone. Yeah, and then suddenly she's got her memory back and back, and everything's fine. And uh, yeah, no, no, yeah, I agree with that. I think that 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 return was was handled well. So going going back to Earthshock, so Adric's died, uh, and then we see the reaction of the TARDIS crew. And then the story ends with the credits on silent, and it, it's not the t- it's what we actually see. It's the credits rolling over the image of of uh, the broken um, uh, Adric's broken star. I remember the f- again the first time I ever watched this, which was uh, on VHS. I actually thought that that wasn't how the story was originally broadcast. Because it, it, it just completely threw me. And I went, have they changed this for the VHS? This is really weird. Special it, VHS edition. Yeah, and it just went, this is really weird. And why is there no sound? Is there some? Because I bought, as I said, I bought the VHS second hand. So I went, is there something wrong with the sound? Yeah, and then, but I rewound, rewound it and I went, well, the sound was perfectly fine just before. I went, all right, okay, it's, it's deliberately sound. It just completely threw me though. I didn't realise that for years. I thought it was some some weird thing that they did on the VHS release. Um, I didn't think that's how it was originally broadcast. And again, that, that's a big that's a big decision, mm. and an, a very unusual one. Do you think it works? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Hats off to GNT. So good, the name to drink after him. <laughs> <laughs> I like this because going back to uh, Doctor Who, the handbook, because uh, it mentions some some points with regards to the story, and this is one. It goes, um, following the story's transmission, letters of complaint were received from viewers concerned about seeing Cybermen with plastic bags over their heads, and also about the death of Adric. I remember the BBC put a little statement out because, um, in the end of Time Part Two when we have Matt Smith's first appearance and he pulls down like his fringe and he's like still not ginger oh yes there there was actually a lot of complaints because people thought 
He's like, yes, I'm still not ginger. Oh, right. No, I never. I always, I always took that that he was disappointed that he wasn't. Yeah, because I thought that he, I thought that was clear. Well, that that was also a reference to the Christmas invasion, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He always wanted to be ginger, but yeah, yeah. people took it the wrong way. <laughs> So, on to listeners' responses this week. Mike Clark on Twitter said, The best cliffhanger ever. The story itself was exciting enough with those lethal androids, but then the reveal. When I saw this and had to wait to find out what was happening next was tantalising brilliant stuff from Eric Sword. So that highlights the um, the reveal and the excitement towards that. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it is a very good cliffhanger. And I can see how, on early viewing, it would have been absolutely, yeah, uh, a massive surprise. Yeah. And he's right, Eric Saywood has, you know, provided a very um, energising and engaging story. Doctor Who the Target World podcast said, It's a great fun story. I like the Cybermen in it. Quite sad at the end, but I think Adric had his time by then. Do you think his, his, um, he'd run his course, Liam? That's a good point, actually. I, th- I think at that point that there definitely needed to be a change in um, the number of companions. I mean, it's a bit funny because what ends up happening is they they kill off they kill off Adric, uh, so they bring the companions back down to two, only to bring it back up to three with Turlo. But then, the, but then Nissa does eventually leave. I think at this point, yeah, I think having three companions was probably a bit much, and I think that can be seen how, especially I think Nissa gets the short end of the straw. So I think there needed to be a change, definitely. I agree with that. And yeah, maybe maybe it should have been uh, because, yeah, maybe, because he'd been in pretty much two full, almost two full seasons at this point. Mm. Um, you know, and I quite like Adric, um, but yeah, I think probably, yeah, I think I agree with that, actually. It probably was time to go. Theta Sigma said the return of the Cybermen was one of the best kept secrets in Who history and the cliffhanger to episode 1 the best in the show's history at the time the story was excellent the characters were fleshed out and performed and Adric's exit brilliantly played out 9 out of 10 oh it's very high yeah um, yeah that's, that's really good praise and I think uh, I think we probably agree with pretty much all the points that were raised there that's quite good uh, and again, interesting. Fo- again, interesting focus on that very first cliffhanger. Yeah, it obviously was very um, impactful on on some people. So I think my personal feelings towards the story. Yes, there's highlights to it, the things you remember about the reveal and the death, but and of course the the new design to the Cybermen, which I love. Mm-hmm. But that said. It's not the most remarkable story. I do love it. I'll rewatch it, but you know it's not that exceptional. I'll rate it a seven out of ten, and I think I think that's been quite generous. I, I mean, we have set the benchmark with other stories here, mm-hmm. so I do take that into consideration. That's interesting because obviously we. So you've picked this as your favorite Peter Davison story. Do you uh, think that says? Do you think that says uh, an awful lot about the era? Possibly. Now that you mention it, yes. Hmm. It, but I don't know because I thought Peter Davison was my 
the era to me that defines Doctor Who. <laughs> because I love his Doctor, I love the music, I know it was adapted from Tom Baker. It's definitely um, a defining era in my eyes and maybe it's not as good as I thought it was. <laughs> Because when it when it was first broadcast, I mean, it was it was very popular uh, this season, and then season twenty was seen as maybe a bit weak, and then it popped up again. It picked up again. Peter Davison's last era. Uh, it's interesting as well with the eighties because obviously this was the the decade that's at the very end of it saw so the the cancellation of the show. If you were to over analyze, I, I don't know whether this is over analyzing or something because it's just interesting. Um, do you think that in some respects it does show a deterioration in quality from previous eras, especially in, in comparison to the previous stories that we've picked? And do you think maybe the writing was on the wall at this point? It could have been. These kind of things can occasionally be hit and miss the way they're executed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean the writing's bad. But, yeah. Um, even though there's quite a few very well fleshed out characters here they are also a bit unremarkable in some ways there's not enough there to intrigue me and then to excite me and in some levels it does fall a bit flat but i do love the story just because because of what it is mm-hmm. no well i have to say uh, for me funny enough i've given it exactly the same score i've given it seven out of ten mm-hmm. uh now it's, it's like you what i've said is that i uh, uh, I do think it's a, a very good, enjoyable story, um, and I'll more than happily watch it. And I have, you know, rewatched it on on several of occasions. But what it is, it's that I think I don't think because it's still highly regarded, and I can kind of see why. But at the same time, I do have this feeling that maybe it's slightly overrated because, and I, I, again, you know, we we've sort of touched upon it in you know when we've been reviewing it. There are certain aspects of the story which don't quite make sense if you analyze it a bit much. I don't think there's much. I don't think it's a story with an awful lot of substance. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, just a simple story told well. And this is a simple story told incredibly well. It's got, you know, uh, I think Peter Grimwade, who directed it, directed it with an awful lot of style. I think there's a tremendous amount of atmosphere uh, in the story, which which I like. I love the music. I love the sound design. Uh, I think, you know, the story has a tremendous use of sound. Um, And I think... Uh, the cast are, are very good, but there are certain, and, and of course the Cybermen, um, who are very effective in their look and how they're utilised, and of course it's got the death of Adric, so the story's sold on that. Um, but there are certain aspects where, I mean, the way that Nyssa is 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 very much sidelined in this story, and then we just randomly cut to her on a couple of occasions in a very short, you know, for a very short scene. So she has a couple of lines of dialogue and then we cut back and you kind of go, what was the point of that scene again? So yeah, it's uh, it's tremendously entertaining, but it, it was one of those things of maybe it could be a bit better, but it's still very good. You know, and I think 7 out of 10 is still a very solid score and I'm quite happy to give it that. Uh, but just before we do our final wrap-up, because I said um, at the beginning of the podcast, I had a slightly embarrassing story when I'm at Matthew Waterhouse. So I'll just mention that. So, this would have been late 2013. Uh, so, this was because we attended our first Doctor Who convention. It was for the 50th anniversary. Matthew Waterhouse was one of the guests. And actually, it was when I, when we went up to, to get our stuff autographed by him. Mm-hmm. 
And at this point, he was still living in New York at the time. And I and a group of friends had a, arranged a family, a family holiday, a friend's holiday, sorry, uh, to America. And we were going to visit um, New York. And I quite like jazz. And I thought, well, you know, New York, the jazz scene, it'd be pretty cool if, if we can fit in time to go to a jazz club. I thought that'd be really good. So I thought, well... And I actually know that I think Matthew Waterhouse is quite keen on jazz. So I went, well, he actually might be able to recommend a, a jazz uh, club to, to visit. So I thought, I'll ask him. Now, obviously, I know I'm going to ask him that. But during the process of me asking the question, I quickly realised that the way that I set up asking him this probably may have initially freaked him out. So I started to say, oh, you still live in New York, don't you? And he went, yeah, yeah. And I said, and I said he went, all oh, right, great. Because um, so, what it is, is that me and some friends have uh, arranged a holiday early next year to, and we're going to be visiting New York. Soon as I said that, I went, oh, shit. He probably thinks I'm a bloody n- nutty Doctor Who fan. And he who's about... Doing. Yeah, it just gone, do you know what I mean? I was just like... <laughs> and then I just... Got, I just then suddenly found the whole situation incredibly embarrassing. Uh, and then I just had to feel like I had to quickly rattle this question, <laughs> this question out. I mean, I don't know whether that's what he was thinking, but I just suddenly found the whole situation very embarrassing. So then I just rattled. So then I've just been talking to his normal, normal pace. And then I went, oh, crap. So then I just went, have you got any jazz that you've got to recommend? <laughs> I, just found the, I just found the whole thing just absolutely embarrassing. In all fairness, he did end up recommend. He was probably bloody relieved. He was just going, oh, phew, he's not a nutter. Um, but yeah, I just re- <laughs> I just remember finding that just absolutely embarrassing. Yeah, um, that's brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I know I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but my um, when I approached Sarah Sutton to get something signed, <laughs> yes, and I was just so nervous I forgot to speak, <laughs> <laughs> and I just walked up, stared at her, plonked a CD ca- a CD <laughs> or a DVD cover down in front of her. And she just stared at me for a moment, grabbed it, and it's the only one without a dedication because it's just she just simply signed her name and passed it back. Sign <laughs> 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 <Just laughs> it, bitch. Which <laughs> literally gave us such a cold look and just signed it and then passed it back. I think she was waiting for yeah, me but- to talk. Yeah, no, but you, I think you managed to compose yourself when you gave her the second thing because I think you did say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, my name's Robert. And didn't she say, oh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be useful to know your name. But she said it in a nice, friendly way. But... But I, I think I forgot to speak and didn't realise I hadn't spoken. <laughs> <It's> kind of... <laughs> oh, times when you yeah. get uh, uh, starstruck. Yeah. We'll be a bit, we'll be a bit better next time. We'll just mob them like the paparazzi with we're close to bell microphones in their faces. <laughs> yeah, I remember. So, um, so the second time I went to a Doctor Who convention, because I think the first one, there was a bit of a novelty to it because it was the first one that we went to. But because also it was the 50th anniversary year, I think you had a really good mixture of fans. So obviously you had your hardcore, hardcore fans, but people just liked the show. So there was a really nice buzz and atmosphere to that convention yeah. and then a couple of years later we went to a second one and didn't enjoy it as much there were some great moments but um, one of the things I remember was it was actually during the, the question 
panel, the interview question panel. So again, it was Sarah Sutton had uh, was it was a guest, and um, one of the again one of the reasons why I didn't particularly enjoy that uh, convention was just some fans, I think, become very overly familiar with the uh, with the with the actors with the guests, and actually are very rude. Because I remember one person thought it was perfectly acceptable to ask Sarah Sutton why she wears glasses because they make her look terribly old. Do you remember? Yeah. Well, I, I, I didn't recall it when you until you mentioned it the last time. I think you brought this up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I remember looking at you, and I, I went, I put it much more strongly than this, but I went, what on earth is going on? She handled it very well. Mm. Uh, but I was just like, "What the hell is this?" Um, you, you tend to think, "Oh, maybe, maybe they're used to this kind of stuff," but you know, maybe they're not. It's not. Very, it's not very nice, is it? Um, yeah. Daphne Ashbrook, of course, was at that second convention, mm-hmm. and you'd presume she'd be um, used to that kind of stuff as well. But um, we were recently watching the um, Paul McCartney's documentaries on Amazon. Oh, Prime, the MythMaker yeah? interview the thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, incidentally, that was probably her first experience at a convention. Yes, uh, yeah. Or, or more or less, because she said she didn't realise the scope of it until the 50th anniversary, somehow. Yes, that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, she did say that. Um, and we'd met in... 20, was it 20... 2013, four, yeah, so it was oh, that no, 50th anniversary. Oh, no, was it the second one she came to? Oh, no, yes, you're right, it so was the second 20, one. 2015? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But um, yeah, she did mention that convention on the um, on the on the um, documentary. <laughs> yeah, 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 she did. Yeah, yeah, I liked meeting her. She she was really cool. Yeah, and I remember because um, w- w- again with that because that was funny because during that interview panel because you know she obviously she talked about her time with Doctor Who but she was all, she was also talking about an awful lot of um, uh, projects that she she had. Was, she was focusing on one particular film that she wanted to make, and uh, when it because ca- um, you know she talked an awful lot and it was fantastic but when it came to uh people ans- asking questions um that we only had time for one <laughs> and that was me and um and i took the opportunity to ask her about more about that that uh, film project that she was wanting to work on so that which got a great response but i, I remember i tended to do that an awful lot of that convention whenever i had the opportunity to ask a question it was never in relation to doctor who no um and because again, I think this was a bit. This is probably a bit weird of me because we went to a Doctor Who convention, and then the fact that it was entirely focused on Doctor Who did my head in. <laughs> Just go, my, what do you expect, Liam? You idiot. Um, but you got some you got some tremendous responses. But I think uh, I think it was I think I don't know if anyone else thought it was a problem. But the fact that there was the only one this one opportunity to ask Daphne Ashbrook a question and it wasn't Doctor Who related. I wonder yeah. if that. I wonder everyone, if that everyone else was one. probably muttering, "What on earth's going on here?" <laughs> Oh. This nutter. <laughs> He's not asking about Doctor Who. Who is this freak? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, memories. So I think we'll wrap it up. Um, while we have been recording, um, we've just hit a landmark. We've just passed three days of non-stop podcasts. <laughs> That's right, folks. So uh, we now have 72 hours worth of, uh, of material out there. So we're still in a position where, if you want, you could binge watch, uh, binge listen to the podcast if you wanted to. Yeah, 
Um, of course, this is the 60th podcast, and um, it's our second anniversary podcast as well. Two years mm-hmm. yep. since we first reviewed The Woman Who Fell to Earth. Mm. And if it hadn't been for um, Series 11, we probably would not have started the podcast in the way we did. If at all, who knows? <laughs> no. Well, we did have... Because actually the original plan was to start the podcast a little bit earlier. Um, but anyway, time commitments pushed us back a little bit. And then we thought, well, actually, given when we're roughly going to be starting, we may as well wait until The Woman Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. So if we went with that initial plan, Lord knows what our first review would have been. No. Um, but yeah, we did We did end up sort of just... Um, we we had to hit the ground running, really. Yeah. Because I, th- you know, I think it worked out good. I, I mean, I, looking mm. back, I don't know how good or successful those first ten or so podcasts were. <laughs> um, I'll have to no, but I mean, we, re-listen. For, but I think um, for a podcast that had just started, we actually got quite a decent listenership. Yeah. Very early on, didn't we? Yes, that's right. That first couple of months, well, we had um, hundreds of listeners. Um, maybe three or four hundred listens. Yeah, which. I mean, I thought, considering that we're doing a Doctor Who podcast and we've just started, I honestly thought, well, if we get five listens for the first one, I think that'd be quite a good start. But no, when we, when when I think when we put it out, I think we got fifty listens within the first twenty four hours or something. Yeah, I'm so sorry, I look, I look on the the stats now. I mean, I see what we've had today. Uh, oh, some somehow today we've had seventy one listens. I'm sure it's considerably less than that usually. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, it, this month we've had um, 396 plays. Um, right, okay. Considering we've been putting podcasts out fortnightly, though, more or less, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing as well. Unfortunately, we haven't been as consistent with the output as, as we would have liked. I mean, because we advertise ourselves as a weekly Doctor Who podcast. I don't know how we're getting away with that advertising, and the fact that someone hasn't sued us for false advertising is uh, is, is, is miraculous. Uh, you know, but, but there, need, there needs to be some kind of Doctor Who podcast regulators out there. <laughs> it's a bloody relief. Um, yeah, yes. Um, I know. So it's quite should good. We, should we stop saying that? Nah. <laughs> nah, it's a thing now. We can, at least we can make a joke about it, I suppose. And there have been occasions actually when we have done a, uh, you yeah. know. We but, have done it, but like a like thing. the BBC One viewing figures show, um, the the view the trends go. It'll be big one week, low the next, big next. You know, so <laughs> we're just sticking with the trends. We're we're going on the weeks where the the viewing figures are big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's true, but uh, there's there's more 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 than those than often than not, which which is quite nice. Yeah, um, and I think. But it's it's always interesting to see are people actually listening, because it's it's hard. Um, it's a great thing we we enjoy doing this, putting it out, and that's the end of it. Um, and of course, it's a one sided thing because the listeners listen to it. Hmm. Um, but we don't. The listeners don't acknowledge with us that they've listened to it. Um, that that's just the way it is. That's fine. But it's it's great to see that people are listening to it. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, and I th- so we must be doing something right, and I think we have a, and you know we're at a stage where we do have a loyal listenership. Yeah, and and we um, when we do have feedback, it's always been positive. Um, 
to my surprise. I mean, when we initially started, I thought there would be people saying, you know, um, what on earth are you talking about? You're no good at this. You don't qualify as a fan. You know, you're rubbish. <laughs> Things like that. But that didn't come in somehow. No, no. I mean, you could actually argue with the fact that we haven't had any negative feedback yet. just goes to show that maybe we're not big enough. Because... Um, yeah. uh, because you see, with you know, with because uh, the fandom the... likes to have arguments. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just mean because the you know when you come across like for example like a YouTube channel that you follow, yeah, you know, and they've been doing their, th- their own thing and they've got um, uh, a reasonable viewership, yeah. But then as soon as they become, you know, there becomes a point when they they've gone over a threshold and they become immensely popular, then the criticism starts kicking in. Yeah, um, but also perhaps and it's not the same for all content creators, but when the viewership is high they'll want to monetize it and they'll want to create content tailored on what's going to get the hits and i like it it's i think if we were in this for the popularity or for the money i think that would be kind of detrimental to the whole thing but we would have failed miserably. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, we've always said from the very beginning that, I mean, if we ever do get to a, a place where we're able to monetize it, then, you know, I'm not going not, not, not gonna to yeah. turn my noses up at that. But the main point of it is it's got to be something that you you enjoy. Yeah, That's got to come yeah, first. So it's, not the, it's, not the, it's not the priority. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, it's definitely not. Um, no, we do it because uh, we enjoy it. Uh, it's quite good. So, and yeah, and, and so we're we're focusing at the, you know the way that we're structuring is because this is what we we like to talk about it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's still early days, uh, and we're still sort of learning. I think I, th- I think probably you know compared to where we were when we first started, mm-hmm. uh, we have got better. Or at least I hope I hope we have. I mean, in terms of just. I mean, because I remember that very first podcast. I think we had probably ten stabs of just doing an introduction. Do you yes. remember? Yeah, and we couldn't do it without laughing or restarting yeah, and, it. Yeah, yeah, we just found the whole. Th- yeah, we just and then so finally, I said we can just, you know, just sit down and get started, and it's absolutely fine. Yeah. So even um, I did one of them by myself, and mm-hmm. I I felt really anxious, and <laughs> I don't think I've listened to it to this day. Yeah, I think I think awful. I did. No, I think I did because uh, yeah, funny enough, it was. Uh, well, that was the thing as well. It was really awkward timing because no sooner had we started the podcast, and um, either I was then away for two weeks, yeah, uh, on, on holiday, I had to which keep it, that momentum going. <laughs> yeah, um, so you did t- you did two podcasts on your own just to keep that momentum going, and then and then when I came back, it just so happened yeah. that something happened. So then I think you were away for a week or two. So then mm. I did a couple of podcasts on my own, and yeah, you just go, ah, something's yeah. missing. Yeah. But you know, there's yeah. there's no escape in that now because wherever you are in the world, we now have the technology to record your Skype conversation. So oh, for frick's sake! All right, okay. <laughs> so um, so I I can start the podcast and be like, okay, we're we're calling Liam now, and you can come in on the line and jump. <laughs> Pretty modern technology. Yes, you're right. We could do that. Yeah. There's no escape in it. I'd just like to do a quick shout out to the neither the time nor space podcast. I will give them another another shout on the next podcast because I've just started listening to uh, their first podcast. But um, quite nicely, they've been listening to our first run of podcasts. All right, good, good. That's nice. Who did a podcast about Doctor Who 
um, by one who loves the show and another who doesn't. So it's like the Mulder and Scully of the of the Doctor Who community. <laughs> oh, that sounds really. <laughs> I like that's good. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds really interesting to to get that different uh, that different perspective. Yeah. So they've that been good. I think they started on Rose and went through right, the, okay. the new ones. Um, but they've done over a hundred podcasts now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just I'm just gonna I'm halfway through the first one. I'll listen to that properly and um, give them a better shout out in the next podcast. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No, it sounds really good. Yeah, I think I'll definitely give them a listen because they do sound good. Um, but I think that's about time to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to the Cloisterbell Podcast birthday special, <laughs> all about Earthshock. Earthshock, yeah. And then our next podcast is uh, I'll be talking about my favourite uh, Peter Davison story. Um, I struggled picking this one because it was difficult to pick one. No, it was. Um, there were one or two that I thought, well, actually, I'm really fond of The King's Demons. And I think, actually, that might be my most watched Peter Davison story. Oh. But then even I thought, even though that I have a huge affection for it, uh, and I do love it, I think actually picking that as my Peter, favourite Peter Davison story is probably a bit, uh, it's a bit much. Um, and people just think, oh, he's just picking that for the sake of it. Uh, I did almost pick The Awakening. Uh, and there were one or two others. Uh, Ark of Infinity uh, was another, just because, again, that's another one that I have huge affection for. But anyway, the story that I finally settled upon was Resurrection of the Daleks. Brilliant. I wish I'd win for that one. <laughs> well, to be honest, um, just because I actually, when you said that you're picking Earthshock, I mean, don't get me wrong, good choice. I was a bit surprised because I, I thought there was going to be, I thought there was another Peter Davison story you were going to pick. Um... Which was Cash Revolver? No, no, I thought you were going to pick Warriors of the Deep. Oh, yes. Um, I think you've put me off that. Damn you. All oh, right, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, we'll save that for another another time. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. So, brilliant. Yes, join us next time when we will discuss Resurrection of the Daleks. Uh, thank you for listening. Head to cloisterbellpodcast.com and connect with us. Give us a review, follow us on social and check out our other podcasts. Yep, thanks everyone.